Computer, initialize Holosuite. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah. Tally-ho. Hey, my little Georgia peach. Hey, Putin. If you are new to listening to us, welcome. On each episode, we open up two issues of Starlog Magazine and discuss articles contained and also consider what fandom was like in years past. If you are listening to us via a podcast app, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel that includes bonus content that is not available here. Make sure that you join our Facebook group for additional insights and to find out about future conventions that we will be attending. Speaking of conventions, these are the next conventions where you can meet us. We will be presenting two panels at the Huntsville Comic and Pop Culture Expo, April 9th through 11th in Huntsville, Alabama. We will be attending the ICCC, that is the Imperial Commissary Collectors Convention. That is April 16th through 18th in Nashville, Tennessee. MetrothamCon will be held April 30th through May 2nd in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We will be presenting a panel discussion. Tickets for these conventions are available. Check out the show notes for links. Feel free to follow along with us in your copy of Starlog magazine. Or you can read Starlog for free at archive.org. Boy. We have an exciting episode lined up today. In fact, when we were talking about these issues, that is issues number 9 and 10 of Starlog Magazine, quite a few of our friends were excited about the articles. So we're going to be hearing from contributors this episode, including Mark McRae, Bob Langer, Scott Allen Evans, Kevin Packard, Joey Casada, Dave Conover, Paul Mount, Glenn Williams, and Jason Wasolko. What did you think about these magazines when we were going over them? Uh, these are exciting. Yeah, the, these actually talk about a lot of stuff I like. 1977. It was a turning point in, in fandom. A lot of changes, a lot of new things, but there was still love for science fiction and fantasy of years past. Starlog issue number 9, cover date October 1977. It says right across the top, special TV issue. Fantastic science fiction shows. And there's a large photo from the Logan's Run TV show with the blurb that's this season's most exciting new TV series. Yeah, can you imagine watching Logan's Run when it was new? I saw it in reruns. Oh, totally. Also on the cover, Patrick Duffy, Linda Carter, William Shatner, and Jared Martin. A lot of newsworthy items in 1977. In fact, under log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction, it reports that ABC will air a behind-the-scenes special called The Making of Star Wars on Friday, September 16th. We know that Star Wars took the world by storm, and especially the special effects. People wanted to see, how did this happen? So did you watch that special on ABC? At the time, I didn't even know about Star Wars. I didn't know about Star Wars till 1978. I, I, you know, I told you a story. I found out about it through the action figures. So definitely did not see this when it came out. Ended up seeing it years later. Oh, so you did watch it later. Sure. 
Yeah, that, that's just amazing. But, but yeah, they, they come out with this stuff like right when the movie is new, which is good. They do it when it's hot. But, but still some of us missed it. Mm-hmm. Flash Gordon in animated TV film. Stalwart space hero Flash Gordon, whose interplanetary Errol Flynn antics serves as an inspiration for Star Wars, will be brought back to life by NBC as a special two-hour made-for-TV motion picture, currently planned for the 1978-1979 season, produced by Lou Scheimer and Norm Prescott. Now, I did mean, that movie ever come on? I don't remember this at all. Yeah, I don't either. But it, but the article there sounded interesting. They're saying it had like Hitler in it, and I, it's crazy. It's one of those things you look at and you're like, mm, maybe it didn't get produced. Maybe not. It's one of those things that I have to dig deeper. I only did a surface research on it, but we'll see. We're seeing these early issues. A lot of it was rumor based, and it wasn't fully established that these productions were going to come to the fore. But it it sounded kind of down to earth. That's what I. It, it reminds me of that when Sci-Fi Channel did a remake of Flash Gordon. Yes. Which was very low budget. Yes. It made yes. me think of that. Good point. I didn't think about that connection. But yeah, but there's a lot of these. Yeah, these older Star Logs had had thing, things like this that like maybe they maybe it never got produced. Because I remember it, the, all this stuff that was in the talks. Yes, I remember the Flash Gordon show from the 70s because yeah, we ended up cartoon, watching. Yeah, right? we watched yeah. that, and that was filmation. And I remember they made the action figures based on that that production instead of the 1981, which totally confused me as a kid. Because I'm looking at this and I'm like, why doesn't this Flash Gordon have the white T-shirt? Why isn't he carrying a green football? <laughs> yeah, they made it from the cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was something we talked about one time. The movie didn't have action figures. That was so strange. Lost opportunity. Totally lost opportunity because my brother and I would have bought them all. Blasting off at Disneyland. Lines were wrapped around Southern California this summer for admittance into Space Mountain, the newest super attraction at that original theme park that started the new amusement park boom, Disneyland. Space Mountain, it's a classic. I can't imagine what it was like to go in its early times when an indoor roller coaster was unheard of. I, I know I saw it once. I I, I didn't ever ride roller coasters so i didn't do that did you ride it many times wow okay i loved it absolutely loved it, it, it so it was indoors and it had all the special effects yes right? yeah it felt like you were going through space and because it was dark you couldn't really see where the curves were and that was one of the exciting parts of it oh it, it does sound neat yeah almost like being on a space ride yes mm-hmm. yeah star wars leads the way for sci-fi invasion It's follow-the-leader time in Hollywood once again, with many major studios doing their best to emulate the phenomenon known as Star Wars. The success of George Lucas' epic space fantasy adventure has brought science fiction to the attention of filmdom's finest once more and may serve to spark a sort of renaissance in the field of futuristic movie making. We know that that is totally true. Because once Star Wars came out, Everybody started scrambling, saying, what do we have that science fiction that we can resurrect or that we can create? And there, there was so much out. I mean, you know, like there was sci-fi before that, but after Star Wars, there was a lot of sci-fi that came out all at once. And it was more big-budget special effects, which before, it, you know, the movies had been kind of at a slower pace. Mm-hmm. So it changed a lot of things. You remember that? 
Star Trek was going to have a TV show. And then they said, whoa, 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 we got to make a movie now. Oh, yeah. James Bond said, well, we were going to make For Your Eyes Only as the next movie. Guess what? We're going to change that. And they did Moonraker. Exactly. So it it was an amazing time for, for sci-fi fans. We were eating it up. Oh, yeah, we were loving it. And and uh, it also brought more uh, sci-fi to TV, too, not just the movies. You're but. not kidding. Yep. Superman film takes flight. Marlon Brando, sporting a stark white wig and wearing a futuristic suit, sat quietly between takes on a busy soundstage near London. What we have to do is preserve the myth of Superman, he said. This film is a valentine. (laughs) (laughs) This film on Brando's mind is, of course, Superman. Alexander Salkin's $25 $25 million widescreen homage to comic book's immortal Man of Steel. Currently in production, the movie stars Marlon Brando as Jor-El, Kryptonian father of Superman. I mean, isn't that crazy? I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather would say, oh boy, Marlon Brando's in this Superman. And I'm as a little kid like, who's Marlon Brando? Well, yeah, I didn't know who he was either. <laughs> <laughs> this was our introduction to Marlon Brando. But that's what they were billing as the star back then. And he was in it for, what, five minutes, if that? Really? And and we were seeing the movie for Superman. Uh, totally. <laughs> yeah. That was our Superman. That was it, our... It was. I used to watch the black and white Superman on TV, and I just... That's all that we had. Well, that this, and the cartoon, the Superman. You're right. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. But, I mean, as far as live action, oh, this this was this was our Superman. But it's funny to look at that. That he was billed. And, and this, and this article actually gives away things like from the second movie as well, because they were filming both of them at once. And maybe they, maybe at the time they didn't really know for sure what would be in the first and what would be in the second. That's right, because we watched a Richard Donner cut and it's curious how they edited it. And I, and from what I understand, this is the first time that's ever been done before that two movies were filmed together and designed to be released separately. It's a yeah, stroke of genius yes. for saving money. Cause you look at that number. $25 million, if you can make two movies out of that... Might as well. It's yes. smart. Let's travel to locations. You're filming one thing. You could divide it up into another movie. The editing is much easier than keep going back and forth. And these were special effects movies, so they, yes. they cost more anyway. And it actually, the article talks about the concerns comic book fans wanted to make sure that this was going to be true to Superman. Look, the TV show, we watched it as a kids, but it was kind of frustrating because it was mainly Superman thwarting bank robbers. Yes, and and at least here he had, um, well, he had Lex Luthor in the first one and then the, the Kryptonian villains in the second one. It, it was awesome. And he had yeah. real powers, whereas the TV show, he didn't have real, he just flew and punched people. Yeah. This brings <laughs> out, much to the relief of comic book purists, Superman's superpowers are represented accurately on screen. While he's not frying omelets for lovely Lois Lane with his x-ray vision, the man from Krypton repairs the Golden Gate Bridge, holds back a leaky boulder dam, sprints through fire, flies across the globe, smothers a nuclear explosion in Southern California, and, in a down-to-earth scene, rescues a cat from a tree. A lot of spoilers in there, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that's a lot of the action scenes. Mm Mm-hmm. I really thought the second one was better than the first one oh, because I love the, the villains and 
Yeah, and the, and the big fight scene at the end it, where they were in the city. Yes. Karen Stamp was created. I mean, he, he created that role, defined that role of Zod. Zod. Amazing. But he did have a small part in, in this one. I mean, the way they paced these movies was amazing. News building doubles as Daily Planet. The home of the New York's Daily News, the news building in Manhattan, became the home of Metropolis Daily Planet for two weeks this past July. Now imagine in 1977, walking down the street in Manhattan, and you're seeing the filming of Superman. I don't think anybody realized how monumental this movie was going to be. I think everyone was excited about it, but of course, like you don't know back then, like when it comes out, if it's going to be a classic, you Mm -hmm. know, and oh, and and Christopher Reeve, who was an unknown then, became such a star. Yes. And he was Superman. He still is Superman to so many of us now. There is no replacement for, for Christopher Reeve. Definitely. Advertisement for Space 1999 Official Moonbase Alpha Technical Notebook. Yes, we have it in our collection, but we did not pay eight ninety five for it because that's how much it was back then. News of Close Encounters News reports on close encounters of the third kind. Steven Spielberg's science fiction fact, speculation, extravaganza, scheduled for release this coming Christmas, are almost unavoidably comical. Take, for example... An early scoop on the production in that same publication that cracked the Watergate story, the Washington Post. This report, published in the summer of 1976, tells all. How the movie begins, how the plot thickens, practically how the movie ends, plus what it's like to watch the shooting of the picture on the close set in Mobile, Alabama last year. The reporter, who likened himself to Bob Woodward, decided that the best way to break our security was to interview some of the extras at night in bars, when they're loose and fancy-free, and then write his story in the first person, as though he had been there reporting the whole thing himself. It was printed and was the most erroneous, far-fetched encounter of the fifth kind that I have ever read. So, what a strange way to get information on a movie. Yeah, I thought this was a weird article. Um, the, The writer is trying to say that that she could, she wasn't allowed to to be there to interview people on the set. I mean, you know, writing a whole article about how you can't do it is just it's it's odd. And I don't know if that like if that would really be allowed today. But I, and I think Starlog just had it back then to to fill the space really. Well, if we notice from this point forward, we're seeing a ton of coverage on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, and I believe that they realized. I don't want to say they dropped the ball with Star Wars. But they were not aware as how big of a deal Star Wars was going to be. And if we look at the early issues of Starlog magazine, there's there, the articles tend to be on the smaller side and happen to be just about the same amount of coverage as any other forgettable science fiction movie. So by the time Star Wars came out, there was very little current information on the newsstands. So Starlog probably looked at this and said, we got to get a jump on Close Encounters because this is going to be big and we want to make sure that we cover it, that we have the information first. So they would just print anything they could on it. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah, they, they were just that desperate. I think it was, it was still somewhat a struggling magazine. This is still, this is the ninth issue. Mm-hmm. It's just trying to figure out what 
what and, they want to yeah, do. And what they want to report on because sure. before they had more science and now they're getting into more uh, popular culture. And there was a ton more. We're still seeing it here, but not as much. But as time goes on, they're doing less and less retro articles from the 40s, 50s, and 60s and reporting on current things. So this is really the spike in current science fiction news. And, and the thing about Close Encounters was Steven Spielberg was already a popular director. Oh, what he did with Jaws was amazing. It was yes. a huge hit. So, so that's another reason that people wanted to see this movie. Yes. Star Wars, my first childhood, says Carrie. When Star Wars exploded on the scene May 25th, it brought stardom to three relative unknowns, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher has been seen as a bold, outspoken young woman in both her screen roles, the spunky princess Leia Organa in Star Wars, and the seductive daughter of Lee Grant in Shampoo. And and it says that Carrie Fisher actually... um. Dropped out of school to become an actor, which is funny. I guess, I guess, like, because both of her parents were actors, they were like, sure, go ahead. And mm-hmm. it also kind of reminds me of, like, like Kate Mulgrew, she said that she, she finished school early because she knew she wanted to be an actress. Yes. And there's a picture of her reading Starlog magazine, and she thinks it's fun. And I think that's the cool thing about Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill. They both expressed what we now call geek fandom. They're both kind of geeky kids. They were young at the time. Yeah, that's neat. And they and they both um, enjoyed what they were doing. And and so Carrie Fisher says here that she that she joined late too, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we knew they had to have a princess for the movie. Hobbit follows Bionics on NBC. NBC's fall TV season will get off to an early start Saturday, September seventeenth when the network will unveil a special two-hour made-for-TV movie episode of their newest acquisition, The Bionic Woman. Also, in the offing will be 90-minute Rankin-Bash production of The Hobbit, based on the classic Tolkien tale. The fully animated 90-minute cartoon will feature 13 original songs penned especially for the film. The title tune, The Greatest Adventure, is performed by folk mainstay Glenn Yarborough. Loved it. Absolutely loved The Hobbit Animated. Ken Adam, 007's designer. The James Bond series is unlike any other extended film project in the history of cinema. Because of 007's success and the need for each succeeding movie to be bigger and better than the last, inherent in the making of any Bond flick is the search for the ultimate mind-blower. This is an article that describes how awesome The Spy Who Loved Me is going to be and how huge this set is. They said it's the largest set they've had for a Bond movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they were always making the, trying to make the next Bond movie the, the biggest and best yet. It was, it was always a thing, and it was always so hard to top themselves with it. So we know Roger Moore is still fairly new as Bond, and he brought a little bit of different feel. Then previous Bond incarnations, that being Sean Connery and George Lazenby, this is a great movie, but it's interesting that this is the first time that we see Starlog covering James Bond. This is the point where they're starting to branch out a little bit because they realize that science fiction fans also like James Bond movies, and to a degree, James Bond has science fiction elements in there. The, the gadgets were, were very much on par with, with sci-fi. 
But but also because it, there was a lot of action and special effects in these movies. Mm-hmm. It, it just, because it was appealing to us. We like sci-fi and we always liked James Bond. And so it gives us a feel of what this production is going to be like at Pinewood Studios filming there, the submarine scenes. And I'll tell you what, I thought that those submarine scenes, they, they could have been filmed at a submarine base somewhere. You'd never guess that it's in a studio. They had to, you know, fill, fill the tank up with water and, and over a million it. gallons of water. Yeah, it's just incredible. Yeah, they they actually do these kind of things for movies. I mean, you know, that had to cost a lot of money, and having the underwater cameras mm-hmm. and having the the actors and and you know they had to use the sign language to to give direction underwater. The director had to be there and sort of doing the motions to tell the actor where to go and the stuntmen. Yeah, previously when they did that in Thunderball, it was didn't in the it was done in the Caribbean, so we know they had to do all this within a studio, different action scenes and how, how it was handled. But out of the news articles, this was the largest segment talking about James Bond. Exciting times in 1977, what they were looking forward to. Which Mountain Revisited? Return from Which Mountain is a new science fiction movie from Disney Studios. This sequel to the highly popular Escape to Witch Mountain stars Christopher Lee. I love these Witch Mountain movies. I thought they were so much fun. I remember seeing them on TV. That's where I saw them too. I saw them on reruns on TV. Starlog Interview with Patrick Duffy, TV's man from Atlantis. Now, we were more familiar with Patrick Duffy from... Dallas. Yeah, he was a huge star by that point. Yeah, so this was um, this was before Dallas, and he wasn't known at this time. Virtually unknown. Now, my first exposure to Man from Atlantis was, I know you're going to be shocked, almost all my first exposures to many movie franchises and television franchises were either from comic books or action figures. I had the Man from Atlantis comic book before I saw the show. Oh, interesting. But but the comic book was actually based on the show? Yes. It wasn't made to be a comic first. It was Correct, correct. Okay. It was based on the show, yes. Uh, what did you think about this article, Patrick Duffy as a person? He, he seems to be a very interesting person. <laughs> he's so he? down to earth. He's almost self-deprivating at some times, like making fun of himself, how he can't believe he's hired to be a swimmer, but he can't swim. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah these kind of things are so funny. Yeah, so he's not really much of a swimmer, but but I do like when he said he he likes sci-fi. He likes Spock and Star Trek. I mean, and how he me. auditioned for Star Wars, but apparently he offended George Lucas, so he never got called called back. Oh, uh, <laughs> so yeah, he missed out on that one, but oh well. <laughs> and he's from Montana. He goes, you know, people from Montana don't really know how to swim, so I was shocked that I even got this part. Yeah, that's funny. Well, I mean, I guess he just got it because he because he looks good in the trunks, right? Oh, yeah, he's a good-looking guy. I mean, I'm yeah, from Connecticut, yeah. and I went to swim classes for years and years. I was an incredible swimmer when I was young. So that one I was like, meh. Yeah, there's some of us from cold-weather regions that we know how to swim pretty good. Well, yeah, it's not like you didn't <laughs> yeah. have a swimming pool, yeah. right? <laughs> and he said he he had to wear contact lenses underwater. And and it and they had to be the kind of lenses that fit your whole cornea. Oh, that has got to be super uncomfortable. Yeah, I can't imagine. If, I mean, even wearing contacts, you know, when Regular, you're not in yes, water. Yes, yes, yes. And he used to be a cheerleader? Wow. And he got trained from the trainer that trained Johnny Weismuller for the Tarzan movies. Oh, that's cool. 
And the producer of this show was Herb Solo, who did Star Trek as well. We know that name, sure. I think it's interesting that he had concern about kids being hurt by watching the show. And he didn't want kids to drown just because they were trying to be like him. Yeah, I mean, he, he had this concern. I mean, because, yeah, people have to be aware that, like, these TV shows, kids do try to emulate it. These people become heroes for kids. Totally. I have scars on my wrist from when I jumped through a window when I was a kid with with a towel wrapped around me and I jumped through a window. I mean... You were trying to be a superhero. Of course. Kids are goofy. <laughs> they do crazy things. My brother has a huge scar on his wrist because he punched his hand through a window trying to be the Incredible Hulk. He cut an artery. I mm. mean, it's like... Kids are maniacs. But then he goes to say, he goes, I don't want kids to get hurt over this. But also, his final thought is, I don't want anyone to tie a lead weight around me and drop me off a bridge somewhere to see if I could breathe underwater. I want everyone to know, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, my name is Paul Mount. I live in the UK and I'm a child of Jerry Anderson. Not biologically, of course, I should be so lucky. No, what I mean is I'm a child of Jerry Anderson in that he was a constant and almost parental presence throughout my childhood in the 1960s and beyond as the creator of a string of extraordinarily exciting and vivid marionette and eventually live-action adventure series that fired the imagination of my generation of children, leaving a creative legacy that, speaking personally at least, will remain with me until I take my dying breath, which hopefully won't be for a little while yet. Allow me to set the scene a little. The 1960s were a wonderful time to be young and growing up and possessed of a hungry imagination. Here in the UK, we were gifted Doctor Who in 1963, the crazy world of Irwin Allen series, such as Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, the Time Tunnel and my personal favourite, Land of the Giants. Then we had the four-colour fantasies of Adam West's Batman, Although as colour TV wasn't widespread in the UK until the 1970s, our earliest memories remained stubbornly monochrome. A children's TV was a wonderland of fantastical globe-trotting adventure serials, zany American cartoons and all TV points in between. Threading in and around all this, though, were Jerry Anderson shows, those Century 21 marvels largely created as an unprepossessing factory unit on the Slough trading estate. And for years, the name Slough conjured up images of a Disney-like wonderland where TV magic was made, a distant land where the impossible was made possible and shown on my tiny TV screen every week. As we now know, thanks to exhaustive research and the testimony of those who were there at the time, the truth wasn't quite so glittering. We all, well, those of us of an age, hold fond memories of watching the exploits of Steve Zodiac and the crew of Fireball XL5. Troy Tempest phones a marina aboard Stingray, the brave and resourceful Tracy Brothers and Thunderbirds, the indestructible Captain Scarlet and even the faintly annoying Joe Ninety. But Jerry Anderson, as we now know, never really shared our affection for his creations. His shows were very much a means to an end. The only work his first company, AP Productions, could find to keep it from bankruptcy in the very early 1960s. And then, when his shows became successful, they became the millstone he carried around his neck to an extent for the rest of his life. Despite the Century 21 production cottage industry that, for a short time in the 60s, generated TV shows, feature films, comics, books, records, toys, games and so much more. Century 21 was an empire, but Jerry Anderson was very much its reluctant emperor, presiding over a kingdom he couldn't help presenting. Jerry Anderson yearned to work in live action, but Lou Grade, his ebullient paymaster at ITC, kept bankrolling more of the same, 
more and more extravagant puppet adventures to capitalise on the popularity of the one that had come before. But when the appetite for puppets wore off in the late 1960s, Jerry Anderson finally got his chance to work with real walking, breathing human beings after a false start with the Journey to the Far Side of the Sun feature film flop. But his reputation preceded him, and he was forever dubbed the Thunderbirds Man, and smart-ass critics, who weren't as clever as they thought they were, would crack lame quips about acting more wooden than the puppets in his live-action shows UFO and Space 1999. See, I've always firmly believed that in a fairer world, Jerry Anderson will be regarded as the UK's Walt Disney, and that the Slough Trading Estate compound, only recently demolished, will be the focal point of an entertainment industry Britain could and should be proud of. There would be lavish theme parks, museums full of original props and ephemera statues commemorating Jerry's life and work, and a thriving modern empire generating new shows and films, and as they call it these days, product. In fairness, Jerry's son Jamie is flying the flag, having launched Anderson Entertainment after his father's cruel passing from dementia in 2012, and he's busily developing new projects, including new productions in the vein of Jerry's work, reboots of old properties, as well as carefully curating his father's wonderful legacy. But Jerry Anderson has never been fated in the UK the way Walt Disney has come to symbolise a very special spirit of America, but that's probably more down to the rather buttoned-up, down-to-earth nature of much British entertainment. Doctor Who has somehow managed over the years to win a special place in the affections of the public and sometimes the critical community. But generally, anything remotely fantastical or mind-expanding is summarily dismissed as hokum or kid stuff here in the UK. Our TV schedules are full of soap operas, quiz shows, emergency services, dramas and routine detective shows. There's precious little room for anything a bit wilder, a bit broader. So good luck, Jamie. Sadly then, Jerry's work fell out of favour in the 1970s as what we might loosely describe as the late 1960s science fiction fad itself gave way to the colder, greyer, grittier realities of life in a rather more austere and less exuberant 1970s. And sadly, criminally, there's no Anderson land. There are no multi-million dollar film and TV franchises bearing the Jerry Anderson production legend, yet. And whilst those who remember his legacy, and also those who are coming to it anew, have fond memories of his show and cherish them, and indeed the man who created them, they remain largely the products of a bygone era. Footnotes in the history of a mainstream entertainment industry now worryingly obsessed with cheap reality shows and disposable five-minute celebrities. In preparing for this feature, I was directed to an interview with Jerry conducted by Ed Naha in Starlog magazine issue number 9, way back in 1977, or as I like to call it, a lifetime ago. It's a telling and, with the benefit of hindsight, rather poignant piece. The second season of Space 1999 has clearly only recently finished production, and the series has already been cancelled and the wounds are clearly still quite raw. At this point, Jerry is ensconced in new premises at EMI Studios outside London. He's not prepared to go into intimate details about why Space 1999 ultimately failed. We all know why nowadays in almost too much detail. But the interview represents a man rolling with the punches and moving on to new productions, too many of which would never see the light of day. But there's inevitably an underlying sense of frustration in his words, an ambitious and driven creative mind, never really allowed to sing his own song his own way, and constantly in the thrall of the whims and caprices of narrow-minded TV executives. We're all too aware of the sad decline in Jerry's personal and professional fortunes in the wake of the failure of Space 1999, and we can take some solace in the fact that his 1960s shows enjoyed a resurgence in the 1990s and beyond that must have gladdened his heart, if not his bank balance, as he held the rights of virtually none of his own work, even if he still clung to the resentment about the way the industry had treated him. 
Indeed, in 2005, he launched the underappreciated CGI reboot of Captain Scarlet, a show that, frustratingly, was criminally mistreated by ITV in the UK, who cut it to bits and jammed it into one of their manic Saturday morning entertainment magazine shows, where it died a slow, lingering death by disinterest. But, undeterred, Jerry continued to work on new ideas and new concepts, right up until the point where his illness made it impossible for him to work. Hearteningly, many of those ideas have now been exhumed by his son, so the future for the Jerry Anderson brand may be bright, even if Jamie faces that familiar uphill battle to get the work realised and ultimately respected by the very people who pay for it to be made. So as I mentioned a little while back, and I'll probably mention again, I'm a child of Jerry Anderson. I'm old enough to have vague memories of Twizzle and Torchy. Fireball XL5 was must-see TV, and Stingray and Thunderbirds were similarly essential viewing. I wish I could remember when I realised that Jerry Anderson was, was the driving force beyond all these shows I loved. I can only assume it must have been sometime around the time that Century 21 comic arrived in 1965 with this stingray on fireball strips and tantalising hints of this new thing called Thunderbirds. I can only imagine that by the time the rather dour Captain Scarlet came round in 1967... I loved the show at the time, with its shadowy Mr. On Plots and clever Spectrum hardware, although I find it a bit stiff and po-faced nowadays. But I imagine that the penny had dropped, and I must have made the connection between all these shows, if only thanks to that tantalising Century 21 sting that opened each episode of Scarlet and several later productions. Which brings me, ultimately, to my favourite Anderson show, the one that still fascinates and obsesses me to this day. No, not the rather silly Joe 90, and certainly not the disastrous Secret Service. I've only ever seen one or two episodes of that one, and I've no desire to see the rest. I'm talking, of course, about UFO, made in Borenwood and Pinewood Studios in two blocks in 1969 and 1970, and, due to the vagaries of British regional broadcasting, which only arrived on my TV screens in 1972 where it was frustratingly pitted against John Pertwee's third Doctor Who series, which led to a potentially traumatic struggle between two very different loyalties. As a teen, I loved Shadow's typically Anderson hardware, and I appreciated the fact that we now had real, living, breathing human beings instead of stiff, unwalking, huge-headed puppets. But the greater subtleties of many of the episodes, the adult undertones and the subtexts, they eluded me until the Saturday morning repeat screening in 1986 and subsequent frequent reviewings on DVD Blu-ray and now Britbox in the UK. I've only reaffirmed my belief that UFO is Anderson's finest hour, well, 26 hours. It's a show that was decades ahead of its time and even now, 50 years later, it could still show a decent pair of heels to many of its slicker and more generously budgeted genre contemporaries. So, yet again... I'm a child of Jerry Anderson. He didn't inspire me to become an engineer or a secret agent or a submariner or an astronaut. He did, though, help inspire in me a love of exciting, thrilling adventure stories. Science fiction, fantasy, whatever you want to call it. Thunderbirds and UFO are the two shows from Anderson's formidable back catalogue that now as a jaded, ageing fanboy I can sit and watch and enjoy as much as I sat and enjoyed them as a child or as a teenager. But now I can properly appreciate the artistry, the sheer blood, sweat and tears went into making these miraculous television series in the days before state-of-the-art CGI technology and the magic of digital effects. But through it all, much as I love them all, and I do love them all, it's UFO. That's the one that really caught me, that really inspired me and really set my imagination working. UFO. Stay with me, please, for regular in-depth looks at UFO, episode by episode. Starlog Interview Linda Carter, TV's only Amazon princess, gets a new life. <sighs> 
My heart skipped a beat when I looked at this picture. I've always loved Linda Carter. Yeah, ever since Wonder Woman. You are not kidding. I mean, this is... It's because of Linda Carter that little me realized I had a wiener. I mean, it was just... <laughs> I realized that, oh my goodness, she is so beautiful. It was between her, I would say, and Bonnet Woman and Daisy Duke. Like, those are my top three when I was a kid. Did you have a top three crushes? Mm, I'll have to think about it. It was probably Mr. Spock, <laughs> <laughs> Captain Kirk. It was definitely Spock. I mean, I don't know if I had a top three, just Spock. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing article. And it talks about Linda Carter's role as Wonder Woman and how for the second season it was going to change. Big time. We we're going to go forward into the future. The first season uh, was during the Nazi era, and then the, the second season they decided to make it current. It was in the 70s. Now, see, I must have started watching it when it was the the current second season. Yeah. Because that's what I totally remember of it being very apropos to the world around me. And even as an adult rewatching it, I liked the second season better. What did you think? Do you have any preference first to second season? It's kind of... Hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're very different. Each one has oh, its so, own charm. I, th I think I like the first season better just because it was so different. Because, okay. Yeah. Second and third seasons, it kind of got more more normal, I guess, because it was in the current time frame. But I like that look. I like that feel. Yeah, that's true. And and so part, part of the um, idea of Wonder Woman is that her costume is very patriotic, like Superman, mm -hmm. like the, the red, white, and blue. Yes. And that was reinforced more so with the first season. It was, because because it was against the Nazis, yes. Yes. Whereas it wasn't as obvious, the patriotism, in the second season. Yeah, I did like how the, the second se second and third seasons had the um, the Iraq computer. I mean, I mean that mm -hmm. was neat to me, going into that computer room and the computer that could talk. That was, you know, the sci-fi element, besides the fantasy element that Wonder Woman always has. This article talks about her, her history, her background, how... She grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and in high school, she was six feet tall, too tall for a boy to feel comfortable to be with on a date, and too tall to feel at ease to be anywhere. I mean, you think about that. It's got to be awkward for someone as Linda Carter to just fit in with everyone. She was destined to be Wonder Woman. It seems like it, yeah. I mean... You know, and I didn't think about being tall would be a problem because I was always short, and that was a problem. But, yeah, just being one extreme or the other, it, it's harder for kids to fit in that way. But for her, it, I mean, it became an advantage. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that she was voted most talented student in her high school in Phoenix. And that means a lot because, yes, she has physical beauty, but she has the wherewithal to do a lot of things. And we know her as a singer as well. You have to check out, if you haven't seen it, seen the snippet of her. We'll, we'll put it in the show's show notes so you could click on it. It's great. It's her doing a variety act. And one of the things she does is a cover of a Kiss tune. And it's one of those things that when I say there were a lot of variety shows in the 70s, this is an example of it. Do you remember the singing variety shows that were constantly on, like Sonny and Cher and Donnie and Marie? It seemed like everyone was trying to get in on it at some point, and, and so was Linda Carter. 
Yeah, I watched all of them. And, and yes, and when Linda Carter had her specials, yeah. she did several, and it was after, after the Wonder Woman series was over. She had all these, uh, TV specials. Yes. And, and yes, I watched all of them. They were great. I loved her costumes and I loved her singing and dancing. She was awesome. And it admits that ABC was reeling from an unsuccessful, unsuccessful attempt to launch Wonder Woman with Kathy Lee Crosby. And Linda Carter was discovered and they realized she has to be Wonder Woman. She fits in much better than Kathy Lee Crosby. Now I saw that movie with Kathy Lee Crosby that they did. I mean, I liked it mm-hmm. and I thought, I thought she was a pretty good Wonder Woman, but, but it was very different. And she didn't wear, she didn't wear the bathing suit like that. She wore a, um, a unitard. <laughs> I didn't even recognize her as Wonder Woman with the unitard. Yeah. And a blonde Wonder Woman. Yeah. <laughs> it was so you, you bizarre. Don't wear, <laughs> you don't picture her that You're way. You're at the point, just make it another character because that's not Wonder Woman. Yeah, that's true. I still, I mean, I liked it as a movie though, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, it was, it was really different. I mean, I was glad that this one with Linda Carter, uh, stuck more to the comic books. Linda said that she has totally immersed herself in the role, but she is balanced and realized that she has to be able to be flexible enough to do other things. Yes. And well, mostly she had a singing career after this. Mm-hmm. She really, well, she, she did have some other acting parts after Wonder Woman ended, but, but nothing that really became that popular. She did Partners in Crime with Lonnie Anderson. And then she was on a Western that, that lasted a season or two. And besides that, she did some Lifetime movies. Yeah, but mostly she was singing and, you know, recording albums and doing a concert, doing concerts here and there. Yeah. I love her sense of humor. She said, The other day, I stopped by the market to pick up a few things. And there were two little girls waiting outside on bicycles. One of them nudged the other and whispered, Look, it's her. They both stood there like statues. Linda grinned. So I just put my fingers to my lips like I was in disguise, like Diana Prince, and asked them to keep my real identity a secret. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to be able to find out these girls who are now grown women and hear what they had to say about, like, what was it like to to see Diana Prince and, and, and have her say to you, keep my secret to you. Like, that must have made their day. They must have gone to school and just been elated about this experience like how cool is that the linda carter made these girls happy over something so simple that that would have been so neat to see her yeah when, when i was that young if i could have met her oh that would have been cool <laughs> <laughs> and and she's still beautiful today i mean and she was in the the latest wonder woman movie she did a cameo and she, she was stole, great she stole the show i thought the movie was mediocre at best and that's being very kind the post credit scene, we both jumped up and said, <laughs> <laughs> She is just, she's regal. That's the best way I could describe her. And everything that I've heard about her, she's just a kind-hearted person. And that's that's the best thing you could be. And she's just yes. a very kind person, wonderful to the fans. And she actually was on Supergirl. Um, she played the president of the U.S. on Supergirl. So that's that was right. That's cool. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So... We always love Linda Carter as Wonder Woman. Hey, everyone. My name is Mark McRae, and I'm the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. My book chronicles how Saturday morning became a competitive business model and the proving ground to what will become the 24-hour kids network. I also host 
a podcast called The Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast with Dan Klink. In addition to that, I was also part of the team that helped launch the Boomerang Network, and I have worked at Cartoon Network as a programmer, as well as I've overseen the promotional strategy for Adult Swim, uh, linear as well as nonlinear. All right, so let's jump right into it, okay? So in the fall of 77, again, it was a very competitive year on Saturday morning television with the big three networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC, really trying to get as much attention as they can, ratings-wise, as well as the studios trying to be as creative as possible. So the first show that's had its science fiction slant uh, was a series called The Skatebirds. Hanna-Barbera, trying to recapture the success of the Banana Splits Adventure Hour that had successfully successfully run on NBC Saturday morning during the fall of 1968, created a new show called The Skatebirds for CBS's Saturday morning, which had its premiere in the fall of 1977. The series had live hosts, uh, actors in costumes, uh, dressed one dressed as a pelican, one dressed as a penguin, and a woodpecker. And these costume skatebirds, they would skate around and they would introduce different segments uh, for the viewing audience. Uh, the most popular segment was called the Robonic Stooges, which was based on Curly, Moe, and Larry, now as silly Robonic Stooges trying to fight justice and being silly and funny at the same time. Another segment was titled Wonder Wheels, where a teenager... Willie, <laughs> Willie Wheeler, uh, his motorcycle turns into an AI motorcycle with a mind of its own. It's kind of interesting that uh, Hanna-Barbera went with this concept because they have a long history of talking cars and motorcycles um, that had aired in previous Hanna-Barbera shows. Um, also featured on The Skatebirds, was a live action drama called Mystery Island, which was a live action drama that centered around uh, these people who land on Mystery Island with a very advanced robot and come to find out that there is a villain named Dr. Spider that wants the robot and wants his technology. And so episodes re revolve around the good guys trying to keep the bad guy from getting the robot and the uh, technology that goes along with it. All right. The robot from the series, which was called Pops, looks very similar to the robot from Lost in Space. So that was the Skatebirds. It was an hour show. And obviously having robotic stooges and a motorcycle that can transform and talk, as well as live action Mystery Island, definitely gave it an awesome science fiction um Scenario. Also in the fall of 1977, The New Adventures of Batman, which had premiered early in February of 1977, the network, I believe, had stored some of the episodes so that they had some fresh episodes to premiere in 1977 and paired Batman with Tarzan for the new Batman Tarzan Adventure Hour. All right, uh, The Seekers of Isis, uh, the live-action superhero that's very similar to Marvel's Storm. Uh, that series was also renewed 
1977, but uh, no additional episodes were ordered by the network because of the low network budgets. Uh, a lot of times when networks ordered new shows, there wasn't enough revenue left over to order um, season two or season three episodes of an existing series. And ISIS sort of fell into that category. Other returning series included the Ghostbusters, uh, Filmation's Ghostbusters, a live action series with Forrest Tucker and Larry Storch, and Arc 2, which was also a live action science fiction series. Those shows returned to the CBS Sunday schedule. So a lot of people don't know this or remember this, but back in the day, there was a CBS a Saturday morning schedule as well as a Sunday schedule. Uh, sometimes the Sunday schedules got preempted depending on what market that you were growing up in. I know in the New York market, uh, the Sunday schedule always ran. But talking to some of my Facebook friends, I found out that in some of the California markets, those networks chose to preempt the Sunday cartoons, unfortunately. All right. Also, the big show from 1977 as well uh, was... Um, Space Academy. All right, so a little background on Space Academy. Uh, the series was created by Alan Duke DeCoveney, who originally produced the Superman radio series and worked with Filmation to produce the DC trilogy, The New Adventures of Superman, The Superman Aquaman Hour of Adventure, and The Batman Superman Hour. Alan DeCoveney worked at DC Comics, and when... The co-production between Filmation and these DC properties came about. Alan DeCoveney was the only one that had media experience at the comic book company at the time. I mean, we're talking like, we're talking about 1966. And I do talk about, I talk more about Alan DeCoveney in my book. Um, a really great executive, a forgotten executive, but he was the one that really pulled everything together on the DC side. Anyway. After he left the animation business and the comic book business, Alan DeCoveney became an executive with CBS and worked hand in hand to help develop the Space Academy series. Alan DeCoveney told Lou Scheimer, who ran Filmation, that he always wanted to do a Space Academy radio show. So now he had the opportunity to work with a company to actually make this dream come true with Space Academy. So Space Academy uh, takes place in the year 3732, and mankind has long left the Earth for exploration. The best and the brightest kids are selected to become part of the Space Academy under the mentorship of Commander Gampu, played with zest by Jonathan Harris, whose most famous role, of course, was Dr. Smith from, Sp from uh, Lost in Space. The blue team, which they were called, included Rick Carrot playing Chris, Brian Tochi played Tigar, Maggie Cooper played Adrian, and Brian Green played Loki, the blue-haired alien orphan. And of course, no science fiction show is complete without the robot. So the robot was called Peepo the robot, and he was voiced by Lou Scheimer's daughter, Erica, um, in the voice records. It was sort of like a, uh, a kid's version of Star Trek, where the kids went on the mission and the teenage kids were in charge. Jonathan Harris, who you know played commander of the show, became a real-life mentor to the, to the young cast. 
some really cool trivia about the show. Uh, Pamela uh, Fedrin and Brian Tochi, again, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Pamela's uh, last name correctly, appeared together in the Star Trek uh, series uh, episode, And the Children Shall Lead, uh, where they played orphans in the episode. So it's kind of cool that those two actors were able to work together again on an actual series. Ty Henderson, who plays Paul, guest starred in a Shazam season one episode, and the following year will go on to play Super Stretch in the cartoon series Super Stretch and Micro Woman, who were the first African-American crime-solving couple who just happens to live in L.A. Uh, when Lou Scheinman went looking for people to design the models for Space Academy, he came across a company that was also doing the modeling for Star Wars, and he ended up hiring a few of those people to make all the modeling for Space Academy. So it's pretty cool that Space Academy has not only tie-ins to uh, Star Trek, but it also has tie-ins to Star Wars. It's pretty cool. Uh, there was a guy named Chuck um, K- Kaminsky who did a lot of the special effects, who learned while on the job. Uh, another gentleman by Rob May also was hired to oversee visual effects for the series. And Space Academy was sort of a first of its kind to feature uh, the live-action modeling on a Saturday morning show and the type of special effects that were used on Space Academy there were a lot of like great uh, visual special effects first for this series. And these guys really made it happen. And they also praised, especially Chuck uh, Komsky or Kaminsky, <laughs> praised Lou Scheimer for, you know, giving him the opportunity to work on a, on a show. And it just became a whole career for him. Also in 1977, on NBC. So that was just all the things happening on CBS, all right? So we're going to move over to NBC. Um, You had a show called The Young Sentinels, an animated series featuring Astria, who was a shapeshifter. She can shapeshift into animals, and she was also the first African-American superhero. Her other team members included Mercury, who was the first Asian American superhero to be featured on a Saturday morning series. And of course, Mercury had speed. The third cast member was uh, Hercules, who in this version had blonde hair and uh, was very good looking and strong. Um, Although not indicated in the series, Astria was the team leader of the show, which was like a first. The series struggled in the ratings. And so it went from the Young Sentinels to the Space Sentinels. So there was a title change. Uh, The title change did not affect how viewers saw the show. I think part of the issue with the Space Sentinels was that with a lot of uh, superhero shows of the time, the challenge for writers was trying to make make the series exciting without having any of the heroes throw any punches, which is pretty hard to do. But the show is has a really great, beautiful production design, and the character designs is awesome for the Space Sentinels as well. Over on the ABC side, uh, Scooby-Doo was king of the jungle over there. Uh, the Scooby-Doo Dynamite Hour gets expanded and becomes the first two-hour series on Saturday morning television. Animated segments included Scooby-Doo's Laugh Olympic, 
a series that is loosely based on Battle of the Network stars and the actual Olympics itself. The series boasts 45 Hanna-Barbera studio stars competing in sporting events. This series was huge and everyone was excited about Laugh Olympics and it did really great ratings for many years as well as on network and in syndication. All right, so that was one half hour, uh, Laugh Olympics. Then you had a half hour of new Scooby-Doo episodes and then a quarter hour of Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels, a caveman who was frozen, uh, gets defrosted and is discovered by the Teen Angels. Of course, the Teen Angels are loosely based on Charlie's Angels, which was a very popular series at the time. And they team up to solve mysteries and crimes. So Captain Angel, Captain, uh, Captain Angel, <laughs> Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels cartoon. And then you also had uh, more Dynamut cartoons as standalone. So this two hour sensational show did huge ratings. And where is the science fiction slant? Well, I will tell you. It is with Dynamut, who also appears in Laugh Olympics, and Captain Caveman. I mean, a caveman that survives being frozen for millions of years has to be science fiction. Come on. And uh, so, you know, the school, I mean, the show itself did really, really well. And uh, so some exciting times in 1977, Saturday morning. Uh, just a quick note. Scooby-Doo, which originally aired on CBS, jumped ship to ABC in the fall of 1976 to form the original Scooby-Doo Dynamite Hour. This happened because CBS did not want to renew Scooby with new episodes, even though the series was really doing really great ratings. All right. And so when Fred Silverman, who originally greenlit Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? back in 1969, when he left CBS and went over to ABC, Joe and Bill, that's Joe Barbera and Bill Hanna of Hanna-Barbera, pitched a brand new series to Fred Silverman. And the next thing you know, Scooby had new franchise life. In addition to having a new series, this enables Scooby to continue for many, many more years to come. Scooby is now an evergreen brand, but I really believe that if he had, if the character had not made the jump from CBS to ABC, Scooby might not have become an evergreen brand and might have become forgotten. Anyway, just a theory. It was so much fun reviewing shows from 1977 and it just made me realize how great 1977 was on Saturday morning. Starlog interview. Ian Goff and Ben Roberts, executive producers of Logan's Run. This is interesting because they share their philosophy and insight into the differences between the novel, the movie, and the TV treatment of Logan. So, what do you think about Logan's Run as a TV series? Well, it was good. Yeah, but you were disappointed because it's so different from the movie. The big thing is that just don't call it Logan's Run. If it has nothing to do with the movie <laughs> besides the look of the costumes, don't call it Logan's Run. Like, Logan's Run yeah. ended so definitively. And I almost say it ended kind of like Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes did a great job of bringing it back and building on the mythos. 
And I was hoping the TV show would build on that, but it didn't. It just rebooted it. They took away key elements, like having the jewels in the hands. That's major. Yes. I mean, for a TV show, they just, they had this idea to, to tone it down, I guess, from what was in the movie. They didn't really want to be showing people's hands. You know, they had to have to put that in their hand all the time, mm-hmm. where you might see it. Uh, too many elements of being outside of the bubble that weren't cohesive to what was going on in the movie. But the article talks about how these gentlemen were not fans. In fact, they viewed the fans as pretty much being in a cult and they don't want they don't want to follow the cult. Yeah, and they these these producers had never done science fiction before. And um I I mean I guess <laughs> sometimes a producer might want to branch out and do something different, but it's really a shame that uh yeah, the the show could, probably could have been treated better by people who were more familiar with what they were dealing with. Yes. Even though they still they did have some good scripts. But, well, they had some you know. good scripts, primarily from the ones who were known science fiction writers, super established ones. They, they, yeah, see, they, at least they knew enough to get sci-fi writers for the show. Like? D.C. Fontana and David Gerald and Harlan Ellison. I mean, as soon as we see those names on the screen, what are we about to say? Oh, boy. You Star got, Trek. You have my, you have my <laughs> yeah. attention now. You, you get those big three, of course. And those were the ones that were... Made more sense, had a moral to it. Uh, it was, it was paced out evenly. They could have been self-contained episodes and that would have been just fine. Yeah, there, there were some good episodes. So, so, but they made this one about traveling around to different societies. And so, so yeah, you're saying why, you know, like why call it Logan's Run? But they had to cash in on that name. That's what it was. And they twisted what Sanctuary was. Yes. They twisted the, a, a governing body of men running the world. It, it was so radically different that that was what bothered me at the beginning watching it. But then you just realize this is the fugitive. That's all it is. It's just people running away. But they decided to add Rem into the series, something that wasn't in the movie. But I actually liked Rem. Oh, I liked Rem too. I thought he was great. And he he reminded me of Data too. Yes. Yep. I could see that being the android that that was different and that was studying humans. The article ends by saying we're letting our writers go as far afield as they want in terms of story, just as long as it has credibility relative to the series. I struggle with that comment because it wasn't relative to the series in the sense that the series wasn't relative to the movie or the book. Yeah, if you want to go that way, but but I think the series still, it had something on its own that it could stand on. It did, it did, and it had some high points. So, when we did our rewatch, it was enjoyable. Good evening. My name is Bob Langer. I'm a lifelong science fiction fan and the admin of the Starlog Magazine Facebook group. Vintage Video the golden decade of SF viewing. What comes to mind when you think of vintage science fiction on TV? For me, it's the 1930s Flash Gordon serials, the original Star Trek, and the Six Million Dollar Man. Just thinking about those shows brings a smile to my face. That sense of excitement and wonder washes over me. 
I couldn't wait to see Flash Gordon's rocket ship hurtling through Mongo's stratosphere, pursued by Ming the Merciless's fleet, narrowly evading the enemy. Monstrous dinosaurs fighting each other over the vulnerable Dale Arden. Captain Kirk bravely saving the day with Spock providing staunchly logical and frequently ignored guidance. Bionic sound effects make me want to run in slow motion. Though, to be fair, even at top speed, I'd probably be running in slow motion these days. These experiences are some of the joys from my childhood. However, this wasn't the golden decade that Starlog was referring to. Before Kirk was a starship captain, before Lost in Space's robot warned Will Robinson of imminent peril, there was Captain Video and his Video Rangers. Covering the years from 1949 to 59, the focus of the article was on shows that no longer exist except in the memories of the most ardent science fiction fans. Premiering over 70 years ago, on June 29, 1949, on the Dumont Network, Captain Video was the first sci-fi space adventure show on television. With a props budget of $25 per week, the equivalent of $250 today, Captain Video produced over 1,500 episodes, five days a week until 1955. Of that run, 24 episodes are still known to exist, held in the UCLA Film and Television Archive. Only five of these are available to the public. Those can be found on the Internet Archive. The remaining 19 are only available at the UCLA facility. In watching a couple of Captain Video episodes, a few things leapt out at me from my 21st century perspective. This show is a time capsule, preserving a romanticized vision of an adventurous future. Created on a shoestring budget, Captain Video not only reflected the future, but the time in which these stories were made. There was good, and there was evil. It was up to the good people to stand strong and fight off the forces of evil. With such a small budget, special effects were almost non-existent. But that didn't matter early television productions drew a lot from radio plays. The focus was on the dialogue and narration, with the visual elements serving to enhance what was essentially an audio drama. Beyond the low production qualities, though, there are a couple of other elements that really stand out. In the midst of each episode, the Video Ranger would pull up video updates showing what was happening back on Mother Earth. This would serve as a segue to showing about ten minutes worth of a cowboy serial. A jarring contrast to the futuristic world of Captain Video. As clumsy as this technique was, I suppose this would also mark Captain Video as the first space western. Take that, Firefly. In addition, during the episodes I saw, there would be a special message from Captain Video, encouraging patriotism, kindness, and to not discriminate against people based on their religion or ethnicity. 
Later in the series' run, prominent science fiction authors wrote for the show, including the likes of Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, James Blish, Damon Knight, and many more. It's a shame that such a small sample of episodes remain. Five out of 1,500? In terms of the cultural legacy that's lost, my first thought is to compare this to the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. Oh, I know that the historical significance of a lost, low-budget science fiction show for kids is hardly the same category as losing a vast trove of historic literature, but it still is a loss nonetheless. Earlier, I asked friends what came to mind when they thought of vintage science fiction. They mentioned Jules Verne, Mary Shelley, H.G. Wells, and the like. Foolish me for not specifying television science fiction. When I rephrased my question, in addition to the shows I mentioned earlier, answers included Doctor Who, Battlestar Galactica, V, and many others. Many of these shows didn't even exist at the time that Starlog article was written, but they are now viewed with nostalgia as vintage science fiction. What shows today will stand up to the test of time, surviving into a distant future as a record of who we were and what our dreams were made of? Will those in the future look back and smile gently at how naive we must have seemed? Will they shake their head and sigh at seeing how primitive the special effects and production values were? In general, science fiction really doesn't age well. It's difficult for stories to remain timeless as we race toward the futures those tales envision. And those futures will invariably be different than anything we could predict. Here's to today's cutting-edge visions of the future lasting long enough to become the vintage science fiction of tomorrow. Starlog interview with Jared Martin. Okay, this is Jared Martin's recollections of the Fantastic Journey series, which I say I've never seen it written anywhere, but I'm convinced that J.J. Abrams watched this series and said, hey, I can make something like this. I'm going to call it Lost. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't it seem like it's, Lost? In in some ways, yeah, that because they were on an island and didn't know where they were. And Plane crash on out. an island. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Time travel. <laughs> random weirdness. It, it was really, it was su- such random weirdness that we didn't want to keep watching it. Like, I, it, it was but unwatchable. Lost was good, though. That, oh, you know. <laughs> but Lost was a frustrating ending. <laughs> oh, boy, that was a frustrating ending. But this was one of the ones that it was such a struggle. And he talks about how this series did not last. And there were reasons for it. And he saw it right at the beginning. I mean, it was only 10 episodes long. It, it wasn't even an entire season. It was a total flop. It must have been, yeah, very incohesive. But 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 the thing about Jared Martin, he was also on Dallas. That's right. So one reason I like this this issue is Starlog. Oh wow, these two great guys from Dallas. Good point. Yeah, he said the set itself, the direction was all over the place. That it it was just a jumbled mess. And about how the guest stars had such uncomfortable costumes that it, it was hard for them to to act in it because they you know that it was just it, you know because you don't want to do anything if you're wearing uncomfortable clothes. Correct, especially if you're on location. You're susceptible to the weather, to the environment. 
It's not it's not controlled, so yeah, and and he makes the point which is so odd is that the original idea was to go back in time and then to go forward into time and then figure out where the series would be. You know, like you don't know that writing it, you, like all this isn't figured out. You you're still figuring it out as you go along. It is strange, and we did see that because there it did, it did look like some people went back in time. And then it looked like some other people were in the future. So they kind of, they did do that, and but it still didn't make sense. They didn't explain it. He says, I, I really don't intend to badmouth the show, but I mean, that's, he had nothing positive to say about working on the set. And I think that this is a, a, a time capsule, a, something that's very different about interviews from yesteryear as opposed to interviews now. And this is a frustration for going to conventions now with current actors that are in production of something. They are so deathly afraid of saying anything negative that they won't be honest. This interview is total honesty. He's just saying this is the way it is. This is a mess. Hey, you live and learn. Let's move on to something else. And guess what? He still did move on to something else, bigger and better. Yes, it's, you know... We're talking about this, and I'm thinking, oh, the poor guy. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of sad. Th- this one didn't work out, but at least he had something later. He said, at first I was angry at the network and at the Nielsen ratings, but you can't be angry with those people. If the show had been a real Rolls Royce, they would have rescheduled it and put it somewhere besides the Waltons and Welcome Back Cotter. If it had been a really good show, I think we'd be on the air. There were many good things about the show. I guess the most positive thing might be it did re-break the ground for science fiction on TV. Perhaps it has held a door open a bit for other shows that might be more successful. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are plenty of other shows that we, ju- that we just talked about. Yeah. And then there's the episode guide for the ten episodes. Hey everybody, this is Glenn and Jason from the Smugglers Galaxy podcast. Yeah, so the article is called The Star Wars Portfolio, written by Howard Zimmerman and Ed Naha. I believe that's how that's the name. And, you know, I thought this is a fascinating article because I've grown up in a world with Star Wars. And this article was written at a time when people were hungry for every piece of information for Star Wars. And we didn't have the internet. So things like this article which breaks down the robots, breaks down Tatooine and Wookiees and stuff like that, is like the first thing people saw and read to absorb some of that information they were craving. Yeah, I did. That's the one thing I found interesting um, with that is because, yeah, nobody's seen Star Wars and, and they're explaining everything to you. And like you said, we've grown up knowing Star Wars. And this is, mm-hmm. you know, from a time where nobody knew, you know, the robots. We laugh, I laugh at that because it's droids. <laughs> yes. Know? Yeah. Yeah. The first section, the, the, car- the subheading is the robots. And it's like, no, they're droids. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're saying. But yeah, they go into, they go into the robots. Anthony Daniels, <laughs> of course, plays C3PO. And I, I don't know. I didn't realize he was a Shakespearean actor. I, I didn't realize that either. Did you realize he did he say he was the one that was a mime, right? Did I read that? Yeah, he was a mime, but he he didn't he was in productions like Macbeth and Much Ado Much Ado About Nothing. So that was all news to me. Yeah. So, but that was cool. But yeah, and then they they go talk about R two D two a little bit and Mark Hamill commenting how how much he loved the the robots and how they're like Laurel and Hardy. 
you know, and I never thought about them that way, which yeah. it, it kind of gives it a new perspective. Yeah, because there's yeah, because they kind of have that bickering that Laurel and Hardy do. They love each other, but at the same time, they can't stand each other. Right, and that's their relationship in A New Hope, which is great. Yeah, it works. Yeah, it worked. It worked for Laurel and Hardy. It should work again. <laughs> yeah, which that totally changes my whole perspective on R two D two and C three PO. So and and it goes to show like how things have changed because that was the the reference point Laurel and Hardy, but now today, if you were going to make a movie. You'd be like, well, those two guys are like the C-3PO and R2-D2 of my movie, and it's not Laurel and Hardy anymore. So it's just kind of interesting how things have changed a little bit. Right. Um, they talk a little bit about Ralph McQuarrie and his influence on the design of Star Wars, and specifically R2-D2 and C-3PO. It says that he was – oh, that they looked at uh, robotics uh, artificial limb experts at Queen Mary's Hospital. So that's uh, kind of interesting too. Yeah, because he's got, I don't want to call them pistons, but they're like right in the crevice of his elbow to help move the the arm up and down. And I could see that being early 70s technology. Right. Well, you could call them pistons because that would make sense. You know, they do okay. kind of look like pistons. Yeah. And they talk about Tatooine for a little bit. Got about a paragraph on Tatooine. Yes. The Lars Homestead in, Ta- in Tunzania is a hotel. And they just reused that for the Lars Homestead. So that's underground. Right. And yep. you could you could still stay there, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's a bucket list thing I hope to do someday. They you know, they, you can go see the remains from one of the yeah. prequel movies and I think they're right next to each other. So that that's yeah. you know, get get a couple of good bucket list items out the way. Yeah, it's still out there and I think fans have gone out there to re um rebuild the Lars homestead. I yeah. think it was just left to the elements and over time it's kind of been destroyed and forgotten and Fans are like, no, we need to preserve this. Right. Which is, yeah, which should be done. And then they go into Wookiees, which is not, not spelled right because Wookiees not spelled like cookies. Got two E's at the end. <laughs> Noticing that. That's awesome. Yeah. So Wookiees, as the subheader is W-O-O-K-I-E-S in this article. And they, they talk about the origin of it. And I guess George Lucas was working at a, a college radio station and he just heard someone say that someone had just run over their Wookiee in the street. And George is like, what, what's, what's a Wookiee? The guy's like, I don't know. I just made it up. I could just hear his radio voice. <laughs> I could just hear it when I'm reading this. Oh, and that's the one thing about star Wars. Uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is stuff that George Lucas just came up with, you know, like, uh, you know, R2D2 was, um, real a role to, of film. Yeah. It was real to dialogue. Something to, yeah. Dialogue to something like that. And he's like, I'm going to use that. Yeah. But it goes into Peter Mayhew. Um, and I was lucky enough to meet Peter. And yeah, they, mm. they kind of just it, it say how he's a towering presence. And yeah, he's just, you know, you shook his hand. It was like putting your hand in a baseball mitt. But uh, I, you know, when I met him, I met him at Dragon Con uh, right before uh, Force Awakens came out. And he must have been in a good mood that day, which, you know, it was just, it was cool meeting him. And we got talked for five or 10 minutes and, you know, uh, getting to, getting to spend that time with him was great. Um, you know, he talked to my wife, he talked to my daughter. I, I just wish we would have spent the extra money and got a picture just to seal it off. But yeah, you know, those five or 10 minutes with him were, were great. I can imagine. They they always say he was a sweet man. I, I need to get back into the ring and start meeting some of these celebrities because, and some of the actors who made these movies, because they're starting to 
to pass away. And I never had the opportunity to meet Carrie Fisher or Kenny Baker or Peter Mayhew. So I need to get in the ring, so to speak. 10, 15 years ago, before everything came back, Carrie Fisher was signing autographs at Dragon Con for 40, 50 bucks without a line and stuff. I missed it. Yeah. Oh, Dragon Con. Oh, that's, yeah. The. That dragon costs awesome. another. Yeah, it's also another article. Right. <laughs> Go to they, dragon they meant, con. Yeah, um, they mentioned that Chewbacca is two hundred years old in the article. That's never mentioned in the movies until Solo, when they say he's like what one hundred and eighty years old. Yeah, and it kind of takes Han by surprise. So it's a, that's like forty years without actually saying that on film. Right, um, and then they also talk about how George Lucas. Um, liked flash gordon and this is sort of a, a a thing you know sort of a lore or whatever the only reason we have star wars is because george lucas couldn't get the rights to flash gordon so he wrote That's his right. own space opera yeah so we could be talking about flash gordon instead of star wars no i see a pattern in that because alan moore wanted to write a story about new characters that dc recently acquired at the time about like the quiz man and the blank and stuff like that. And they wouldn't let him because they just got those characters. They wouldn't let him write that. So then he went and wrote Watchmen was, which is known as the greatest comic book ever, the graphic novel. And, and same thing with George, he wanted to write a flash Gordon movie and they said, no. So he went off and he wrote one of the greatest science fiction fantasy stories ever told on screen, Star Wars, in wow. my opinion. Yeah, it is. <laughs> We're still talking about it 40 years later. <laughs> so hell yeah. Yeah, like I said at the start of this, it was interesting to look back at the lens of the time and, and see Star Wars through eyes that haven't really absorbed it as much as we have. And we kind of take all this information for granted, and they're kind of spelling things out that I already know. But this was news to someone at some point, and it's just interesting for me to see that perspective. Right. But yeah, they kind of go on and talk about how everybody's into comic books and everybody's kind of – read uh you know read comic books i'm, I'm looking um uh, mark hamill said he he liked uh silver surfer green lantern and superman and batman you know basically everything that everybody else liked you know popular at the time yeah yeah we all grew up on them yeah but uh it kind of goes on and talks about the kenner line which is where we come in because we host a collecting podcast uh called hello, hello. yeah smugglers <laughs> galaxy so look us up uh but they were talking about how they did um, – Kenner forecast a line of toys coming up the spring of 78. So this is in 77. Mm -hmm. uh, ben Cooper did Halloween costumes with a life-size mask of Chewbacca and C-3PO made out of hard vinyl. Uh, and they said it's going to be about $40 a shot. So back then, $40 was a lot of money. It was. Yeah. The 70s money during the uh... – the gas crisis and everything, yeah. See, I'm kind of curious. I don't think these are the, the costumes that I'm thinking of that are, you know, these sound like they're going to be a little bit more uh, detailed than just the plastic with, like, the half mask. He's talking about how Mark Hamill was stationed, his father was stationed in Japan and uh, auditioned for Astro Boy, which was filmed nearby. Hmm. But that's sort of how he, I guess, started doing his uh, voiceover work. Probably, yeah. Because he's after Star Wars, he just got right back into voiceover work. Right. Playing the Joker. I know this is skipping towards the end, but did you see how they spelled lightsaber with a S-A-B-R-E-S -E at the end? No. Yeah. The, I think it's the last section there. Oh, yeah. There Top, it is. Yeah. It's just funny because 
this is before everything's been trademarked by Lucasfilm and so lightsabers is not a, a it's it's also two words in this it's not one word kind of talk about how it's um a reflective material put over a rod that the camera kind of sees the reflection of the, the the material which makes the glowing effect and then they don't really get into it in the article but that's when they layer the colors on top of it afterwards with the special effects but it is reflective at like 200 times it's normal brightness. So it just amplifies the light. I love, I got to say, I love all the uh, practical effects that Star Wars used, uh, you know, down from stuff like that. You know, the models, they used organic sounds to make everything. Um, you know, Chewbacca was a mix of like five or six different animals. The blaster sounds, the tension wires or the tension wires on a telephone pole. Somebody just hit them with, with a wrench or whatever and got the blaster sounds. So yep. I really think that what that's what makes Star Wars stand out as long as it has and made it stand the test of time because you know we were talking about this earlier the prequels where everything's on a blue screen you just kind of lose it where with the practical effects it it stays with you for 40 years and yeah. it definitely holds up Absolutely I like uh, George's quote um he's talking about why he made Star Wars and he loves fantasy and nobody was making these kinds of movies and he wanted to see one, so he just went out and he made it. And that I think there's some life lessons in that. If there's something you want to do and you see that nobody else is doing it, then do it because you might be the one to do it. Right. So look what happened to Star Wars. It became a cultural phenomenon that's lasted 40 years and is worth billions of dollars. It's not all about money, I know, but, I mean, it's just it's grown exponentially. It's a generational thing, all because he loves fantasy and there was a, a type of movie he, he didn't see in the theaters anymore, and he decided to go make it. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. 40 years later and billions of dollars and two tray, uh, two theme parks. and uh, Follow your dreams. Um, I do find that they, they did have a quote by Alec Guinness because I always heard he hated Star Wars. And yeah. he hated, he hated uh, his role. But his quote in this is, when I read the script for Star Wars, it's something – it had – it had something that had to be made, had me high, held my attention, and was an adventure story about the passing of knowledge from one generation to another. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I, and I've always heard he hated his role. Um, my, understand, my understanding is he didn't really hate the role. He hated, he resented that all of his work, I mean, he was in Lawrence of Arabia, not Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, he was in Lawrence of Arabia. He was in um, Dr. Shivago. He was in, in Bridge, over the, Bridge Over the River Kwai. He made all these great, phenomenal movies, but at the end of the day, it's Star Wars, and he's in it for like 10 minutes, and it's like, I've done all this other work, all this magnificent work, but all, anybody ever asks me about is Star Wars. Right. I think that's his point of view. Yeah, well, what's so, funny is I'm listening to a, a Office podcast, Rewatch podcast, and they talk to yeah. all the actors that have been on The Office, yeah. and no matter what they do, they've always recognized by The Office, so it's it's kind of funny what people grab a hold of. And some people are okay with it, and some people are not. Right. And um, the office people are, and Alec Guinness wasn't. Yeah. Hello there. <laughs> Goodbye there. <laughs> yeah, they're talking about all the practical illusions they or practical effects they had, how they had diff, uh, real explosions. Uh, you know, they used real models. Twenty-five different, yeah. twenty-seven different kinds of explosions were used in the final film. Wow. That's insane. Oh, here's something. Uh, this is on the the Death Star. 
They they yep. built a twenty a seventy five foot trench for yep. the Death Star run. And they programmed. I mean, this was the early day. Like, not only were the special effects pioneering, the way they captured the special effects were pioneering. They used computers. They programmed computers. Like, these were a bunch of nerds who loved movies and loved computers, and they married it all together. And they programmed computers to follow a specific track down the trench. So they didn't need somebody pushing a cart with the camera on it. The camera would just smoothly move, and it was just points in space, and it was just all bleeding edge technology for the time. Right. The um, skipping ahead to Empire, yeah. that was the first time that they had used uh, done ships on a white backdrop. Yep. Because they couldn't hide anything, you know. And with a dark black drop, they could hide stuff. And yeah. when a white one, you can't hide anything. So they had to be, you know. It, it was a definitely a big challenge for them. Um, I'm also. They with uh, with the ships. They said they cannibalized over 300 model kits to construct them. Um, yeah. And the Millennium Falcon was six feet across yeah. when it was done. That's just incredible artwork. Right. And they're doing it again with the Mandalorian. I know it's not the article, but they've kind of gone back to that same technology where they're programming and building from scratch. Right. And that's what they did for the uh, Razor Crest. Yeah. Well, that's what makes it. Like I said, that's what makes Star Wars hold up. That's what makes it look so good. You're absolutely right. Incredible. Incredible yeah. stuff. I don't know if I've ever seen that photo of, of Mark Hamill looking in the in the gunship, not the gunship, the gun seat, um, smiling. Right. I just I don't know if I've ever seen that before. That and then the one next to him um, at the Lars I Homestead. I don't think I've yeah. seen that one either. And what are the other two? Oh, they've got the Vader choking the uh, guard. Captain Antilles. Okay. See, so you're better with names than I am. Yeah. And then the droids, R2-D2 and C-3PO, the, the robots running down the hall. The robots, yeah. <laughs> the Shakespearean robots, the mind. Right. <laughs> and um, then they've got uh, a sand person attacking Luke. Yep. And then... <laughs> I got to do the sound effect. <laughs> and then... Uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 confronting the stormtroopers in the uh, Death Star, which I don't know if I've ever yeah. seen that image either. I mean, I've, you, we've seen it, but, you know, you you don't see it. I don't think it's I've a different angle. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, the Star Destroyer with the three engines in the back. Over tattooing. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, it's a good article. I enjoyed, um, you know, reading it, like we said, from, from that perspective, because it's always fun. Uh, hearing people that have never seen it talk about Star Wars and try to explain it to us. Yeah, it, it, you know, a nice little space capsule. Time, time, yeah, yeah. Time, time capsule. Yeah. There you go. What do you think? What are your, what are your thoughts, Jason? Same thing. Like I keep saying it because I'm just fascinated because it's it's not taking anything for granted. It's spilling everything, spilling the beans for the first time. People have never processed or, or consumed this information before. So it's great. Kiss, each sold separately, and you can put them in any crazy pose you want. That's the name, Kiss. They may look insane. Kiss, it rocks your game, it's Kiss. Kiss, 
Each 12 and a half inch figure sold separately by Mego. Starlog Magazine, issue number 10. Cover date, December 10th, 1977. Inside, eight-page science fiction merchandise guide. Exclusive interview. Master of Cinemagic, George Powell, launches new film projects. So the last issue for uh, 1977. This is the cover date that closes it. You open it up, there's a beautiful advertisement. Finally, Star Wars is catching up with some merchandising. Simple things like t-shirts, iron-ons, buttons. I like this button that says Darth Vader Lives. When I was a kid, I had this van. It was a model kit with a van. And it glowed in the dark. You put the decals on them. One of the decals was Darth Vader Lives. And I, I just thought that was such a cool saying because I around this time you also had buttons that said Frodo Lives. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a thing in the 70s. Something, something lives. Like Star Trek Lives? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it was like <laughs> yeah. everything. Yep. And color buttons are $1.50. Full color posters, two dollars and fifty cents. T-shirts, four ninety-nine. Phase four of California Incorporated. Now, from the bridge, this is editor Kerry O'Quinn's blog for the issue. You might say, he says the big event of my sixth-grade life was in Austin, Texas, the premiere of When Worlds Collide. That day, I sat in class, not really hearing what was being said waiting for school to let out, wondering why everyone else wasn't as impatient and excited about this new science fiction movie as that they had been during the World Series. When 3.30 finally arrived, I joined two other friends who shared my anticipation, and we rushed downtown to the Paramount Theater. And he recollects what it was like to see the George Powell movie in the first run, and to watch other George Powell movies, like the Sinbad movies, and uh, well, Ray Ray Harryhausen, uh, the, you know these masters of science fiction, and w- what an incredible issue with it! Like he's viewing this as such an achievement to have articles about George and about Ray, because these are the masters that he grew up with. And and we look back and we have to say, wow, a couple things we, we can relate with: how excited we were to see science fiction movies first run when we were in grammar school, and how we couldn't wait for that bell to get off so that we can. Either watch a show on TV or go with friends to a movie and and to look at in fondness of these masters and read about them. It's great reading about these movies that we have now. I mean, I mean, these older movies, you know, we saw them on TV. We couldn't see them when they first came out because they were like from 50s, 40s. But but yeah, it's great reading about these and seeing how excited people were and to know that. Okay, so these are the groundbreaking movies. These are the ones that made sci-fi accessible to us later because the newer movies had to had to build on these ideas and the the way everything grew from there the the special effects the visuals became what we have now and these are the ones that george lucas said inspired him steven spielberg inspired him so i mean we have to understand the past to, to see the present to see the future and also knowing that carrie o'quinn the editor That's why we love Starlog Magazine so much. This was a passion for him. This is a labor of love. And we as readers, we we see that it's a labor of love. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction. 
Star Wars leaves its imprint. On August 3, 1977, history was made in the famous Chinese theater of Hollywood as the first three-legged footprint took its place in the cement previous imprinted by such legendary figures as John Wayne, Marilyn Monroe, and Betty Davis. August 3rd was Star Wars Day. <laughs> what do you think about that, the footprints? Darth Vader, R2-D2, C-3PO? Yeah, that was neat. I actually saw those because I, I visited the, the Chinese theater several years ago. Yeah, so did I. There's a picture somewhere floating around of, of me at, at this point. I, I love putting my hands next to theirs, putting my feet inside theirs. Yeah, it's great to see that. I mean, th they have so much stuff there, but seeing the Star Wars characters and then they're like, oh, that that's something that I like. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And in such a short period of time, you got to think about it. The movie was only out for a couple months and already they knew that this was an instant classic. Other film stars, it took them years, if not decades, to have their hands and footprints in there. But can you imagine yeah. right off the bat? Because Star Wars became the highest grossing movie of all time. So, I mean, that's why it just it just propelled them so fast. Advertisement for the Starlog photo guidebook of spaceships. Hey, before the internet, this is the only way you're going to get these pictures. New Wonder Woman flies high. The cast and crew of The New Adventures of Wonder Woman are having a ball taking the show into new and uncharted script areas. One of the new guiding forces behind the transplanted show, Mark Rogers, said, One show will be shot entirely in Los Angeles area and another will get into the rock scene involving several prominent members of the music world. I know there was an episode with Leif Garrett. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. The Prisoner Returns to TV this October, PBS stations around the country will be presenting the popular TV series, The Prisoner, complete and uncut for the first time. Great show. What an announcement that PBS was going to be airing this for Americans to see. So that, that must be when you saw it the first time? No, definitely not. Um, I was way too young okay, for this. Yeah, yeah there, There's no way I would have been interested, even if I was exposed to it. I wouldn't be interested in this as a young age. No, I saw it much later. Yeah, it it is a great show, I, and I kind of think maybe it was it was almost too intelligent for its time. That's why they only made a few episodes mm -hmm. because it was just it it was just so mind blowing and it's so different, a, so radically yeah. different. Like, how, how do you even describe it to people? Yeah, because it well, it, let's say it had a lot of twists to it. You mm -hmm. could say it that way, and I mean, it was just it was very cerebral on the set as Logan runs. The phone rings and an extra garbed in red grabs the phone. Logan's run. No, Randy Powell isn't on today. The extra hastily moves aside as the camera and crew hurries past on their way to the corridor set of the alien ship. The actors are working five days a week over 12 hours a day. I'm taking all my vitamins and eating and sleeping right, says Heather Menzies. If we work six days, I'd be walking zombies right now. They worked hard on this set. And it, like, a, most of it seemed to be outside, and they must have been really hot, especially Logan with, with his costume mm -hmm. and Ren. Bradbury's Martians on stage. Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles has been adapted by the author for a stage and is currently being seen in Los Angeles. That's a curiosity. I've never heard about it touring. I've never seen anything of the sort like this before. 
No, I haven't either. I wish something like this would come back because I'd watch it. New science fiction TV-ers wait in the wings. In the new season barely underway, the host of Backup Series, some of its science fiction is being prepared for airing after January. On the CBS schedule is a two-hour telefilm entitled The Hulk, based on Marvel Comics character. The film stars Bill Bixby as Dr. Banner and newcomer Lou Ferrigno as Banner's alter ego, the Hulk himself. Ooh, this is probably the first mention of the Hulk TV <laughs> series in print. Newcomer, Lou Ferrigno. He was young at the time. Yeah, that's that's so funny reading that now. Yeah. yeah. Star Wars Close Encounter, Spark Alien Conflict. With the success of Star Wars and the excitement surrounding the soon-to-be-released Close Encounters of the Third Kind reaching a peak, the film industry is pulling out all stops in order to jump on the sci-fi bandwagon. Some of the alien genre films scheduled to make rounds soon include Prey, Skywatch, and Alien. Out of those three, we know which one became big. Yes. Lovecraft film delayed. Our Cthulhu project isn't dead. It's only slowed down a bit, says Cinema Vista president William Bates. I don't think it ever came out to be a, a cry of Cthulhu film, but it's interesting that they were thinking about making one. I mean, I could be wrong, but I couldn't find any record of this. In search of close encounters and other things along the way. Well, we have this massive close encounters article talking about what Steven Spielberg has done in the past, specifically Jaws, and how that was such a blockbuster that his new film, Close Encounters, is heavily guarded. They're shooting in Los Angeles, Wyoming, and Alabama, and he wants to keep everything a secret. Yeah, so they're saying everything was a closed set. Well, well, what's interesting about this, because it reminds me of when, when Steven Spielberg did his first TV show, Amazing Stories. Oh, and I love that show. That was that is, was like the 80s Twilight Zone, you yes, could say. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of, it was kind of kept secret, too. Mm -hmm. And when they would put the description in TV Guide, instead of putting a description of the episode like TV Guide did, all it would say is, this is Steven Spielberg's new show. But but the thing is, like like nobody would watch it then, and, and it was... Later, when, when uh, TV Guide started actually giving episode descriptions, that people started watching it. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, so, so it, I mean, it's just funny, like, he because Spielberg has become so big, even at this time of Close Encounters, that, that he just thinks that his, his work can be kept secret and people are still going to love it. He wants to which, build momentum. Yeah, he wants yes, to keep yeah. the mystery. Uh, like, I, I can kind of see it. The special effects remain unspecified. The Hollywood Reporter also mentioned that they were accounting for nearly half the cost of the production, the cost being somewhere up to the multi-million dollar sky. In general, the special effects came off in this report as practically the heart and soul of all the secrecy surrounding the production. But they did say um, that John Dogstra was working on the special effects. He was one of the big Hollywood guys. Yes. And he did Star Trek the motion picture as well. Mm -hmm. And quite a few of the scenes that are going to be filmed most likely were not going to be made. And we see that this does happen quite often so that it does throw off reporters that if they see something, they report on it, 
and it's not in the movie, it actually waters down their credibility. The author closes by saying, It doesn't matter if scenes are cut from the finished film, not if the movie will be what we have plenty of evidence to lead us to expect it to be. If it's Steven Spielberg, (laughs) that's really what it comes down to be. Usually, if it's Steven Spielberg, it's quality. And and we do know this movie became a classic. Mm Mm-hmm. Late developments with Close Encounters. So it mentions that the previous author, Miss Russell, ended her epic flight into frustration. The news that came to be at the last minute has been enlightening in some ways. There was a 20-minute promotional trailer featuring clips of some of the most dramatic scenes of the film that's made its way into New York City. But it was the the reporters that were trying to find all this. Yeah. And... And let the public know about it. And it was just harder to, to get things back then. Well, well, I mean, for this movie, the way they were just trying to keep it so closed. But they did release these trailers because they, yeah, when it got closer to the movie, then they were trying to build up more publicity. And this talks about a 35-millimeter full-color short that actually was released by Steven Spielberg and include interviews with Richard Dreyfus and other members of the production talking about the film. So Spielberg was keeping everything closed, but then releasing things little by little, only to select communities, only to select areas. Curious, huh? But also, even in this, they still weren't releasing much information. They were still trying to be vague. Yeah, yeah. And it says the publicity budget for Close Encounters is substantial. The problem is that Columbia and Spielberg have not allowed their publicity people to do anything. They're just waiting. They're they're sitting waiting for the right time. Space Academy. This fall's newest and most expensive Saturday morning sci-fi TV epic. You're a big Space Academy fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, Saturday mornings... And watching the the kids in space, it was mostly teenagers. <laughs> Doctor Smith, the um, right? he, the the yeah, he played the commander on this one. Yes, yeah. So you ha- you have a Lost in Space connection, you have a Star Trek connection. I think the cast is pretty hysterical to look at as adults. Yeah, I mean because yeah, I didn't know at that time that the kids had been on Star Trek, but yeah, it was, it was still fun to watch it. <laughs> and and they had the little robot Peepo. Yeah, he was cute too. <laughs> And we saw a model of the Space Academy at uh, at Wonderfest, a model that someone had made. It was wonderful. It, it was so neat. It was probably just the same size they used on the show. It was a few feet long, you know, but it not It was scratch huge. built. So it's amazing that there's still people at this time that have a soft spot in their hearts for this series. And you knew it right off the bat. You ran yeah. to that model. <laughs> you went, ooh, Space Academy. <laughs> That was such an interesting ship because it had, it was sort of a mirror image of itself. The bottom was a mirror image of the top of it. Mm-hmm. And you, you have never seen anything like that. Not in a ship. And they actually, and the guy that made the model said they used paper cups. That was one of the things on the ship was paper cups. Cause you, and you could tell too the, and they would, you know, a cup turned upside down. It was just, but it still looked good the way they painted it and everything. I like how the article says that we don't want it to be a monster of the week show, that a monster is going to be the exception instead of the rule. They want it to be the focus on the characters. Yeah, that's why it was such a good show, because mm-hmm. it was it was a cute show about the kids, really. 
Future Conventions September 24th, PhillipsCon 2 in Enid, Oklahoma. Rovacon in Roanoke, Virginia, September 30th to October 1st, Christianburg, Virginia. SaltCon, Salt Lake City, Utah, October 14th and 15th. OctoCon, Santa Rosa, California, October 22nd and 23rd. Mile High Con, 9, Westminster, Colorado, October 28th through 30th. Kineticon, New Britain, Connecticut, October 28th through 30th. Sci-Fi, Horror, and Fantasy Con 3, Los Angeles, California, November 25th through th- November 27th. Creation Con, Comic Book Convention, New York City, November 25th through 27th. Would you believe Space Journey 1999? When production ended so abruptly on the syndicated TV series Space 1999, a number of fans blamed the failure of the show on the many changes made for the second season. But few fans knew of the drastic changes that were made on space before the filming ever began. Wow, what did you think about this article? Th- this was really news to me. Different ideas for the show... It, it was it was a good article. It, it's so funny how they can talk about stuff like this that you don't think would would appear in magazines today. Now I did view Space 1999 as a spinoff of UFO, and I heard that loosely that was the idea that the UFO episodes that were more alien oriented had better viewership. So the idea was let's make a whole show based not on Earth but in outer space, and it would just increase the the viewership. Because that was more interesting to people. It was something that was new and exciting. Whereas UFO, man, visually, that was a stunning show. Those half-naked, purple-haired ladies, you got my attention right off the bat. (laughs) I was waiting for that in Space 1999. Yeah, but they didn't have it, did they? No. So initially, there was an idea of having the show being a half hour, but they decided on making it a full hour long. And there was a variety of concepts of how the bridge would be made, and the engineering. But they wanted to do it on a limited budget, so they would have to use forced perspective and be kind of creative on how everything would be done. And I do think that shows that have a limited budget, oftentimes I find extremely endearing because they work harder at, I want to say maybe the story has to stand up even better because you don't get that eye candy. Yeah, the limited budget forces the stories to be better because they can't focus as much on on the effects. And, and even though we love the effects, and so they try to do it, I know they try to do them as best they can, but yeah, it's, it's always the stories that keep you coming back to a show. And one, I, one of their ideas they said they had was using a computer that had the morals of the commander of, of a human. Mm-hmm. That, that was so neat, yeah, because it's... That I would mean, change yeah. the scope of the show entirely. Because to me, just watch, having watched Star Trek so much and seeing the computers and how humans are always so much better than the computers. <laughs> so now having one with, with, with human morals, that, that's an interesting idea. And go figure. Roger Culp and Catherine Ross were originally picked to play John Koenig and Helena Russell. I mean, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, they're iconic. I, I can't imagine anyone else in those parts. 
It's hard to picture, yeah. And and there's yeah, whenever you read about different actors that were considered for another part, it's always funny. Interesting insert. And it's one of those removable inserts that you could pull from the center. It's on a different grade paper. Starlog's first annual science fiction merchandise guide, nineteen seventy seven to nineteen eighty eight. The Yellow Pages Directory of dealers, products, services, distributors, manufacturers, and craftsmen. And it's literally yellow pages, the, the same type of paper that we used to have in phone books. Oh, that's cool. And look, this is the internet before we had the internet. How many times have we said that Starlog was our internet? Yes. I, I, I look at this and I just, I did not have this issue when I was younger. I got into Starlog a little bit later. I know you got into Starlog early on. Well, yeah. Well, I didn't have this one either. It was still a little later for me. Uh, this is just absolutely amazing because it breaks down. It looks exactly like a phone book yellow pages. And in alphabetical order, it has different areas. Arts and artists, blueprints, buttons, catalogs, costumes, fan clubs, everything that you could want. There's addresses to write to. This is curious. I'm, I'm just looking at some of the highlights here to see if any of these companies are still in business or if I remember ordering some of these. One of them, Al Siros, 550 Dixwell Avenue, New Haven, Connecticut. Focus on science fiction, fantasy, Star Trek art, comics, illustrations, and graphics. I grew up in Hamden and in Woodbridge. This would have been close enough that if I had this guide, I could have gone to, I'm mean, going to guess it was this guy's house. I don't know. <laughs> there was a Logan's Run fan club, and that was based in San Diego, California, called Logan's Run Organization of Fans. Under games, it lists Eon Products out of Dorchester, Massachusetts. They make the Cosmic Encounter game, and that game, we have one of their earlier editions. That is currently in production. That they've That has been around for decades, and they, they've reissued it. I mean, to think that that just started as a small hole-in-the-wall place. Well, just like any company, TSR, anything, had to have yeah, some beginnings. It, it's hard to imagine some of the stuff in, in this issue is actually still around. Some of these businesses. Mm -hmm. New Eye Studios out of Elmwood, Connecticut. Props and light shows. Uh, amazing. I'm looking at some of these companies. Shuttlecraft, R2-D2, Robbie, and more. The Worlds of George Powell, Past, Present, and Future, From Atlantis to the Moon. Hey, we love George Powell movies. If you want to talk about a pioneer of science fiction, if we were to talk to people today who the pioneers of science fiction were, I think most people would say George Lucas, Gene Roddenberry, Glenn Larson, but they got their inspiration from... George Powell and the, these older uh, movie makers. The list goes on and on of amazing George Powell movies. The War of the Worlds, Destination Moon, Tom Thumb, Time Machine. I mean, they were just so amazing, and I constantly say they stand the test of time. They, they had stories that, that, that you can still relate to, that you're still excited about. I mean, even though, like, like yeah, we've been to the moon now, but it's still... It's still something to see, like, oh, the, the, the first time that people did it. Oh, wow, it, it could have been like that. And he does stories about the good in humanity, which is, you know, that, that was something he liked doing, showing that, that people could, could do these great things. 
And I do, yeah, I, I appreciate that because it, the human element is there. And they show how people react in certain situations. Sometimes it's how negatively people react. And it counters it with there still is hope for humanity because it shows that, well, we could counter that with the positive. Yes, like we, we can still go to the moon even though there, there's problems and and people still have f- fights and all, but you can still work through that. And and he, he wanted that humanity over like just fantasy elements. I mean, he wanted the humanity in his movies. Even though we had the special effects, he still wanted his movies to be believable on that um on on the side of being down to earth in that way. It's interesting, he says Powell believes that one of his younger peers and fans, George Lucas, has changed a lot of executive opinions. Maybe I'm getting a chance now because suddenly people wake up when something like Star Wars hits them, he smiles. I think that Star Wars suddenly proved to them, the people who have money control, that maybe you can make fantasies and science fiction films that are popular with everybody. At long last, they realize something I've been telling them for many, many years. That special effects is as big a star as any. And I do mean that because it was proven before and it has always proven again that good special effects can be as big a star as John Wayne. Star Wars is a perfect example. Before that, 2001, and before that, some of my films. But even before that, Fritz Lang proved it with Metropolis. Metropolis, that, that is one of the ones that started it all. Excellent story, a very compelling story, but it's the visualization that really we remember that's so vivid. So he makes a good point about how you need both the storytelling and the visual effects for science fiction. And he said Star Wars shows that there's an audience for science fiction. I mean, even even more so than people thought. Hi, my name's uh, Dave Conover. Uh, I had been a religious reader of Starlog since around the third issue. And prior to that, was always a big reader of Famous Monsters of Filmland. And uh, this was probably the first interview with Ray Harryhausen that I would consider to be a fairly mature interview that really kind of went into his history, into his passions, and into his technique as much as he would reveal at the time. Uh, prior to that, a lot of the interviews that were done with him were famous monsters of film plan, Forey Ackerman's Mag, which I loved, but they were primarily focused at a younger audience. And uh, I was one of those young fans going all the way back to when I was maybe four years old and had been a very obsessive Ray Harryhausen fan. And uh, that particular year, 77, two things happened. Uh, an issue of Famous Monsters, which was also devoted to the latest Sinbad movie, uh, published some images from a film, War Eagles, which was a legendary production that Willis O'Brien and Marion C. Cooper of King Kong were going to do in the late 30s, but never got off the ground. And then the interview in this magazine, Starlog 10, uh, Ray actually mentioned the film for the first time in print uh, and talked about that being the place where he originally met Willis O'Brien and got encouraged to continue working. Uh, that later led to a collaboration between Ray and myself, which I'll get into a little later. But as far as this interview goes, it was a wonderful piece. Uh, Richard Myers uh, kind of showed the same attitude towards Ray as everyone else back then. We all were very worshipful. He was like literally a wizard. 
and we loved his work. And uh, his account of meeting Ray is very similar to the experience I had, and that when you do meet him, you're surprised that he's such a congenial, uh, very laid back, very funny man, which uh, I did finally meet Ray uh, 1993, I think, at the famous Monsters Convention in Arlington, and then uh, started to meet him more and more often at various conventions until I invited him to be guest at our own convention, Mid Louisville, Kentucky Wonderfest, uh, in 1996, and again in 2003. And in 2003, he was actually able to spend about a week with us, and we started talking about uh, this book project that I had been wanting to do for so long, and that led to a long association of about five years where I saw Ray on a very regular basis. So I knew him essentially for the last 20 years of his life, and it was a joyous thing to be a part of. He talks in this interview very much about his childhood, about uh, building models, about what an effect King Kong had on him, which I think everybody who was around at that time shared. It was a singular motion picture and inspired him to try to mimic and learn how these processes were done. Uh, he also points out very much uh, how his parents encouraged him, which was key, uh, kind of a rare thing, especially in that era, to want to go into such an unusual occupation and have your parents encourage your creativity. They were both very creative people. Uh, as he mentioned many times, his mother sewed a lot of the costumes that he later did for his fairy tale films for children. His father machined a lot of the armatures uh, that were used in the animation models. And uh, I had the opportunity to actually play with some of those armatures and see them up close, and they were astoundingly well made. Uh, Ray's dad was a very creative guy. Uh, the skeleton from Seventh Voyage and Jason the Argonauts is still as mobile, you know, 50, 60 years later as it was when it was done. And uh, I also got to play with one of the flying saucers from Earth versus the flying saucers. They were incredibly precisely machined and uh, beautiful little pieces of engineering. Uh, but he goes into his, his parents' help, uh, his parents' encouragement, mentions meeting uh, Ray Bradbury and Forrest Ackerman. Uh, who I was also uh, luckily able to meet uh, as part of uh, that group of magical people who influenced me so much. They did the same thing for him. They provided a lot of friendship and a lot of support. And uh, they used to meet at the Science Fiction Club at Clifton's Cafeteria in Los Angeles. We had a Science Fiction Club here where I grew up, where I met folks that were similarly interested in things. And this was a very different era, which Starlog was a part of. Uh, I miss that era where things were basically our world came to us on paper or over the television or in the theaters. It was literally physical media. Uh, we live in a very different age now where we have access to virtually everything. We have streaming. We have instantaneous information every day of our life. And I think it's great. But there's so much being produced and so much being discussed, it has become so hard to keep track of it. And Starlog was one of those publications when you were a kid my age. I think I was 14. You just hung on every issue. There was so much history. There was so much current film, so much future film on the way that uh, you couldn't wait for the next issue. This particular interview it meant a lot to me because I was able to learn about Ray as a person. He expresses uh, a lot of his humor in this as well in his response to some of the questions. Ray was a very funny man. Both he and his wife, uh, Diane, were very funny, very charming people and were a joy to spend time with. And uh, 
he tries to show that there's a positivity to pursuing a career like this. Uh, this era, I remember this is 1977. Star Wars had just made its big collective impact. It was just beginning. And so stop motion was still being utilized pretty regularly. It was utilized in Star Wars. It was utilized in The Empire Strikes Back and even in Return of the Jedi. But things had not begun to shift towards digital effects yet. It was still a handcrafted kind of occupation. And that's what Ray was so good at. He talks about some of the challenges of doing some of these early models, working with Obi, uh, working with George Powell, who was also interviewed in this issue. And finally, getting into a place of deep satisfaction working on The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which was my personal favorite Harryhausen film, uh, both because he could do color and because he could get away with get away from kind of traditional monsters, dinosaurs, things like that, and, and go into the realm of fantasy. It all kind of sprang from his image of wanting to have a skeleton running up a spiral staircase. No one had done a stop-motion skeleton. And here he had a chance to do that and then, then to create the Cyclops and the dragon, the Cyclops still being my favorite uh, creation of Ray Harryhausen's of all time. These films were, were, were big hits. These films led to working with Charles Schneer more and more and, and led to kind of the birth of the Sinbad franchise, which they explored uh, on a, not a very regular basis. It was a long time before Golden Voyage came out. We can back up. I think Golden Voyage came out in 1973. I saw it on its first run. And they released, uh, re-released uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad in uh, 1975, which I saw at least twice in theaters. And I loved every minute of that. Uh, Ray goes on to talk about the development of uh, Dynorama, Super Dynamation. These were all basically just dynamic tags they used for... Uh, their process and to give something to splash onto the poster and, and, and show that their work was a little different than everyone else's. Uh, he does mention a few projects he never got to do, but mostly goes on to talk about First Men in the Moon, One Million Years BC, Valley of Guanji, which was one of Phyllis's ideas that he finally got to write about. Heads over into the current film, which at the time was Eye of the Tiger, which was a fun movie, but you could tell that the, the franchise was starting to shift. It was beginning to get a little uh, repetitive. I don't think any of it was Ray's fault. I think it was just like they had reached the limitations of what they could do with their kind of filmmaking, with the kind of rating that they wanted to achieve uh, with their productions. And uh, what lay ahead was going to be Ray's final film, uh, 1981's Clash of the Titans, which is a wonderful movie that everyone remembers with uh, great fondness. It was already kind of an antiquated process by that time. I think a lot of people still understood the charm of animation, but a lot of people had seen some of the radical new things that were being done with Industrial Light and Magic and with Go Motion by Phil Tippett with Dragon Slayer and other productions. And none of that had come about yet, but it was on the way. Ray talks about the magic of stop motion, how it is not quite a realistic process, and that is what gives it, I think, its effect. It is the unnaturalness of some of it. It feels more like toys come to life. And we always used to discuss that, uh, that aspect of magic that uh, he did so well, because I did consider Ray to be a risk, be basically a great magician. Then they kept their secrets close as magicians often do. There were a lot of other talented animators, but I think everyone agrees that, that Ray still remains the best of that era. Uh, getting back to the personal impact of this issue, he mentioned War Eagles, 
talking about Obi. He said, I first met him when he was preparing War Eagles at MGM, and he invited me down to his office. He had his walls covered with these magnificent sketches of these War Eagles, all preparation pictures in color and black and white. Of course, I almost passed out from excitement. And then came the dark years, and this was because uh, the real war came along. This was made in preparation in 1939, and uh, 1939, September of that year, uh, Germany invaded Poland in World War II, got off the ground in a very bad way. Uh, World War II had been an aspect of the script for War Eagles. It was about uh, an unnamed Germanic nation that was going to attack the free world. And uh, that was a major element of that story. Hollywood objected to portraying that kind of stuff before the actual war began, even though everyone knew that was probably on its way. Uh, there are other huge fantasy elements with a lost tribe of Vikings and giant eagles who end up saving the day, flying down over the pole and attacking a uh, German fleet or a German dirigible over New York City. Uh, it was a great film. It would have been a tremendous film, bigger than Kong, but alas, it did not happen. They did a lot of pre-production work on it. And a lot of that was lost time for ages with just little images slipping out, uh, drawings, artwork, pre-production work, like Ray mentioned. Occasionally some stills of the models. Uh, we knew that some test footage had been shot that had still never been found, but a lot of stills and other items would slowly slip out. Uh, Ray had great memories on this, and we did several interviews on it over the years. But starting in 2003, we started to meet pretty regularly. Uh, talking about it, and through a network of fans and professionals, we started to realize there was far more War Eagles out there than anyone knew. Uh, Jim Danforth, Bob Burns, various people like that who were always discussed in the pages of Starlog were always fans of this project as well, and slowly more and more of it started to uh, accrue until we learned that the majority of the scripts uh, resided in the basement of USC in Los Angeles, and I was able to examine those uh, starting in 2003 and spent the next five years working on a book about the history of this unmade film. Uh, Ray was delighted to see a lot of this material turn up. Uh, we used to meet pretty regularly whenever he was in Los Angeles. I got to know his agent very well. He would let me know when Ray and Diana were coming in. And we saw each other uh, at times, uh, several times a year for about a five-year period. It was a wonderful time. Uh, Ray stopped traveling to the United States around 2008. Uh, he had gotten to the point where travel was hard on him at his age. And we, uh, we still maintained uh, contact through telephone and letters and things like that. But uh, he did provide me with a lot of great information, including, uh, finally, in one of our last big interviews, uh, the name of the person in his high school study hall who turned him on to Willis O'Brien, turns out, her brother and her dad had actually worked with O'Brien in the effects business. He'd seen her in a study hall with a script of King Kong, which had bound-in illustrations. He became fascinated by this. They asked her about it. Uh, he, he had mentioned this uh, person for years, but never mentioned her by name, but finally did. Her name was Margaret, and I was able to track down the family. She had passed away, unfortunately, but her brother was still alive, who... Uh, granted to be a wonderful interview, as well as a friend of mine. And uh, we learned a lot about that period. We learned that he had been one of the last living technicians to work on the original King Kong. So wonderful, wonderful gifts came from knowing Ray. Just information, humor, 
just joy of spending time with someone so creative who celebrated that creativity with you. Uh, he was always so encouraging and always so much uh, a youthful presence. I knew Ray in his 90s, and it was like talking to your, your friend when you were 12, 13, 14 years old. The enthusiasm had not altered. I miss him very much. It was probably one of the most magical times in my life to get to know Ray, uh, to get to know uh, his friend Ray Bradbury, to get to know Forey Ackerman better all those years. And I'm lucky that I was able to spend time with them before they all departed. It is something I will treasure for the rest of my life. Uh, the book came out in uh, 2011, uh, published by Bear Manor Media. It is called War Eagles, The Unmaking of an Epic. I co-wrote it with Phil Riley, who had done a number of film books about finished and unfinished films. It is still available. I think they're going to put a link up here on the blog to let you know where to check it out. And uh, we've got a lot of interesting material in there, a lot of fascinating things. Ray always wanted to make this film. We actually had new scripts commissioned, and uh, the rights had reverted to the Cooper family, so they could go ahead and try to do it. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, all the effects people in Hollywood were lining up to work with Ray Harryhausen, but uh, the new generation of producers were only vaguely aware of who he'd been and what he was responsible for. They knew a lot of his films, but they didn't know him. They had a hard time connecting and getting that off the ground. There are still efforts being made to produce War Eagles. There are still efforts being made to try to revive the Sinbad franchise. Uh, these are things I'd all love to see come about, but I'm not so sure uh, when or if that will happen. Uh, they may reside in the same realm as Starlog, a time that was a different time. Uh, a time when, like I said, everything was physical, everything was on paper, everything was uh, shared in a very different way than it is now. This is Scott Allen Evans looking at the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings article. The opening focus of the article seems to be quite a dated question, asking whether Bakshi is worried whether the film will meet people's expectations of Tolkien's work. This seems like a tired issue, but then we have to remember that this was the first major studio adaptation of Tolkien, so it stands to reason that this question was still fresh on people's minds. Then we have Bakshi's hints at never-before-seen animation techniques. He is, of course, talking about the rotoscoping, animating over-filmed live-action. We implies that you've never seen anything like this. For better or for worse, he's actually right. When he boasts that this might be the best thing the studio has done, well, what can one say, really? A bold claim, but obviously, Ralph is a bold filmmaker. When he talks of his confidence in the story and the screenplay, he's right again. The screenplay is one of the strengths of the film. An interesting point is Ralph is not using the voice cast as a selling point. Today's studios would definitely advertise John Hurt as Aragorn, and fresh in the wake of Star Wars, Anthony Daniels' supporting role as Legolas would definitely be mentioned, sold, and advertised. Ralph mentions a complete lack of studio interference, but in 2020 hindsight, this would definitely change over the production. It's difficult to believe that not showing the studio any of the film's progress was even an option. It's interesting also that at this time, Ralph wasn't showing anything to the public at all. Yet, how is that any different from Amazon's exceedingly tight lip 
prequel series that's now in production. Taking all these hints and promises, what I would have expected to see was something like a highly refined version of Ralph's work on Wizards. That also leaves me with a giant personal question on my part. Ian Miller, a brilliant artist that worked on Wizards and would later work with Ralph on Cool World, has a body of Tolkien illustration, so why was he not featured in the Lord of the Rings film? Was Ralph saving him for part two with the Siege of Gondor and the elements of Mordor and so on? We'll never know, unless Ralph can answer. If memory serves, my first issue of Starlog was two issues later with uh, issue 12, I believe. And as it turns out, I would first learn about Ralph Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings with later issues that actually had stills from the films. And when I saw those myself, I was sold. Hey, this is Harry Bond from Danzig, and you are listening to Starpod Log, the classic science fiction and fantasy magazine for your ears. The connection between science fiction and rock and roll is our discussion. Good evening, my friends. This is Kevin Packard from the band Checkpoint Charlie here in Nashville, Tennessee, to talk about an article featured in Starlog by rock writer Ed Naha relating to how science fiction influenced a generation of rockers in the 1970s and even earlier in the 1960s. He begins the article by referencing the song Purple People Eater by Sheb Woolley, a 1958 song that was by many accounts, the first science fiction-related pop song that uh, reached a wider audience. But I kind of feel like there is more to discuss here than just a flashy costume by a, a 70s rocker or a, a, an alternate persona or a narrative in a song or even a, a, a theme album. I kind of feel like it reaches it's a, it's, a, it's a subject that reaches into the human condition as we are, as people, as fans, as as creators. So I wanted to reach out to some people in the community who could give me a more scholarly point of view as well as a more comedic point of view, starting with drummer Joey Casada from the band ZO2 and star of the IFC television series Z-Rock. Joey has his own YouTube channel, Wrestling with Joey Licious, in which he uh, talks about his exploits with several different professional wrestlers. He's an avid toy and comic collector and uh, has his own KISS tribute band as well as has just released his own autobiography, It Starts With a Dream. Then I reached out to Scott Essman, who is a noted professor of film and popular culture at the University of Laverne in Southern California. Each of them joins me via Zoom for this discussion on rock and roll and science fiction. Joey, first of all, the basis of this conversation is an article from Starlog. Tell me, were you a, a Starlog fan back in the day? I, I had a couple issues. I wasn't like an, an, an avid reader, mm-hmm. but I, I've, I'm a tremendous sci-fi fan. I was actually putting all my Star Wars weapons in my Star Wars case that I just had recently custom built with my son today. We were lining up all the weapons. So I'm a big, big Star Wars fanatic, big Trekkie. I know you're not supposed to love both, <laughs> but I do. Um, uh, all of that stuff, Battlestar Galactica, growing up in this, I'm a 70s, 80s kid, so I love all that stuff. So Starlog definitely was a big part of my childhood. This article, Ed Naha, talks about, um, he quotes Gene Simmons where he says, the first time that a musician plugged in an electric instrument, he felt that connection between himself and outer space, right? 
Um, for you, when when did you discover uh, sci-fi, and and how did that relate to when you discovered rock and roll? Believe it or not, it was right around the same time. So I I, I was born in 1974. So yeah, 73. I, same, I, we're the same I, age. I, oh, amazing. <laughs> so you know, I was oh, I started loving Kiss in 1979. I went to see Kiss at Madison Square Garden. I was five years old. In 79. 1979, the Dynasty Tour, oh, Madison man. Square Garden, five years old. I didn't even know why I was going to Madison Square Garden. My brother and, and my parents were taking me there. My brother was a Kiss fan. And all I knew, you know, I wanted to get a hot dog at, at the local vendor, and I, I could care less what was going on. Okay. But when that music hit and those superheroes hit the stage, sci-fi superheroes, I always, I kind of equate sci-fi fantasy superheroes i lump them semi together because it's all of that fantasy pop culture that i fell in love with i think right at that moment sure i didn't really know star wars one when it first came out i did see empire in the theaters i didn't see star wars in the theaters originally because i was a little too young i was only three and i think it was the moment that i saw kiss on stage and i saw these superheroes and went home and saw and looked at some of my brother's records that I think I not only fell in love with music, I fell in love with drums, but I also fell in love with all of that fantasy that would come after that, that really opened up the door to me. The moment I saw Kiss for the first time live, it opened me up to all sorts of pop culture. I'm a really big comic book fan. I'm a big sci-fi fan. I'm a big fantasy fan. I played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid my whole life. I still to this day play Magic the Gathering. I'm an avid, avid player. So all of these things have, I, I really believe that kids from the 70s and the 80s sucked in that pop culture, whether it was video games or, or comic books. And the, I think all of them kind of blended together. We, for me, it was wrestling too was a big one. So all of that stuff kind of merged together for me. Ed Naha in this uh, Starlog article talks about the imagery associated where rock and rollers like the, of the day of obviously Kiss, Alice Cooper, um, but David Bowie, you know, primary example. And then he goes into things like Earth, Wind and Fire and, um, and Parliament and Funkadelic where they were using science, classic science fiction imagery as part of their stage show or even their persona, right? Where they were, they were actually with Kiss, they were able to live a level of anonymity based on the personas that they created. I mean, each of their characters had a backstory. Do you remember the name of the planet that Ace was supposed to be from? Jandel, of course. Jandel. Hell yeah. Um, interesting enough, I, I spoke to Eric Singer, Kiss's drummer, uh, a couple of days ago about this, and, and he was he, he mentioned Jandel, and he mentioned you know the mythos behind all the characters that they created and how it, it, it for a while, all throughout the 70s, they were able to be almost completely anonymous and, and and live separate lives from those characters okay so while we're talking about um rock and roll being inspired by uh science fiction what are some works that readily come to mind that are your favorites that were in, like rock rock inspired by sci-fi or by fantasy i'm a big fan of all that stuff and it all started to me with tolkien's lord you know obviously the hobbit and then lord of the rings sure. you know zeppelin mentioning that in in their in their songs almost made the nerd part because i loved used to love that stuff and a lot of kids didn't love it it made it cool to like lord of the rings because if robert plant can sing about it it's got to be pretty damn cool right 
Absolutely. And it's interesting, too. You uh, you reference Zeppelin. For me, the tie-in, the, 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 the rock-inspired um, art for me would, would have been 2112, you know, Rush. Um, I mean, you talk about them taking something like, uh, you know, the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand and then creating this uh, sort of otherworldly, out-of-time sci-fi or epic, you know, around a rock and roll narrative uh, and creating something that completely busted through the mainstream and created and, and sort of gave power to the the sci-fi nerds who were in the know. But again, there's so many more after that too. The, obviously, me being a big Kiss fan, when even though most people think it's a very cheesy B movie, when Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park comes out, <laughs> and <laughs> you know they they're the they become they basically become superheroes in that movie. And to me, when that movie comes out, I'm four or five years old. There's nothing bigger in the world to me. When I remember taping that on Betamax on my TV one one Halloween. And I live that movie because if these this band that I love so much, got, they're also superheroes and sci-fi stars and fantasy stars. This is what I have to do <laughs> right there. And it's interesting that your your turning point came from recreating the, the, the thing that was your original inspiration, which was being in a Kiss band. You know, that so ties into everything we're talking about here. So it wasn't until I pivoted again, I said, you know what, let me take a break from the business, the music business, and do something that I love for a little while, just for fun. Never thought I'd make money on it. It wasn't for money, it wasn't for fame, it was just to enjoy myself again. And it was joining a Kiss tribute band, putting on that Kiss makeup, do, having pyro and explosions during our shows. We put on a big, big monster show VH1 even did a special on us that, that was on VH1 called Mock Rock. It was so much fun to do, and it rejuvenated my love of music and superstardom that wind up, you know, inadvertently translating over to ZO2 and Z-Rock, which became where I really, you know, succeeded and achieved my fame. That's awesome. It's interesting you bring up your kids. I, I think that the greatest thing that I have experience whether it is as a science fiction fan or as a musician is sharing these things with my children it has been the great one of the greatest joys of my life i mean being able to be in the room with your kids when they find out that luke's father is darth vader and them kind of making that realization and being able to introduce things like you know um you know your favorite kiss record taking my kids to their first kiss concert was the coolest thing i i, I can't even describe what it was like i remember uh, watching my son's face when when Gene did his bass solo with the blood, he's like, "Dad, look at the blood." <laughs> <laughs> but I I kind of feel like you get the same. It, it goes back to what we were talking about talking about in the beginning. You get that same sense of of enormity that 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 sense of being greater than you are. That sense of, of uh, adrenaline or um, excitement that you would get watching or experiencing sci-fi as it, as it would be you know, rock and roll. Um, so kind of drawing it back to what we were talking about where the art imitates um, the art because <laughs> that's what it is. Sci-fi um, influences rock and roll. Rock and roll influences sci-fi and then eventually become, they become hand in hand and they go to the greater heights where in, in reality, rock and roll and sci-fi 
kind of had a vision quest of its own and became a hero in itself. You're so right. I mean, it's so funny to me, you know, being a musician all these years, I got to tell you, I would say 90% of all, all the musicians from my generation are sci-fi pop culture freaks just like I am. Yeah. And you would never think that they are. You would think they're these totally different people, but these these big rock stars that I've worked with throughout my career, they're just as nerdy as I am. <laughs> they love their they love of everything that I love and and it's it's I, I think it's a great thing for for us, for musicians, for sci-fi fans out there. I think to have all of these genres accepting of one another sure. and these big comic cons being not the place where, you know, weirdos gather, but the place where it's fun for everyone to gather and enjoy the these genres together and they're not looked down upon anymore. I think it, it's all it's 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 making the world of, of sci fi and, and, and the, the love of pop culture that we love, whether it's the, the success of the MCU or, you know, the success of all the different, you know, the WB, DC shows or whatever they are, it, it, it creates that success because there's it, it, it broke the barrier and made all of these sub genres acceptable to everybody. Sure, sure. Huge thanks to Joey Casada for joining me on that little trip down memory lane and our own feelings about the connection between rock and roll and uh, science fiction, uh, the more humorous aspects <laughs> of our own goofy upbringings. But now shifting over to a more scholarly point of view where this connection is concerned in film and popular culture, we shift over to Professor Scott Esmond. He is a published professor of film and popular culture appreciation at the University of Laverne uh, in Los Angeles and has written essays and articles for Cinefix and Fangoria, among many other publications. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Listen, where do you feel this merging point is between rock and roll and science fiction, or even just film in general? I think it starts with the directors. The directors of the 70s are largely the last remnant, remnants of the silent generation, right? Okay. Born in, let's say, the late... 1930s, early 1940s, and then the baby boomers. I think those directors who grew up hearing rock and roll in their brains incorporated it into their visions of these films. For instance, best, best director to come out of the early 40s amongst his peers in my book was Brian De Palma. Sure. Brian came out of that early 40s group that included... John Milius, George Lucas, Francis Coppola. I personally love De Palma's approach the best to the genre films. But for instance, Phantom of the Paradise. Phantom of the Paradise is rock and roll meets movies, and it's kind of like the first shot across the barrel of that kind of 70s excess. De Palma and Phantom of the Paradise is saying, this outrageous rock and roll stuff, this can be part of this world. This could be a Phantom of the Opera style movie and we're integrating the excesses of rock and roll, which at the time included Bowie and Kiss came along and the New York Dolls. This stuff was amazing in that the directors who very often will put their personal stamp on a movie if they can, had carte blanche to do so. Brian De Palma said on the record, that'll never happen again. The 70s was a unique period in time where directors took the reins of production 
themselves and made the movies they wanted to make on their own terms with their own ideas. You know what's funny is how rock and roll influences science fiction. Think about this. American Graffiti isn't science fiction, is it? That he uses wall-to-wall rock and roll in that movie and that the movie's success allows him to do Star Wars. That was what bought him the right to do Star Wars. Isn't that a funny... Isn't that a funny through line? Well, interestingly enough, yeah. Big rock and roll fan. So here's the question. Do you think that this was, um, you know, the integration of rock and roll uh, where, where, where the, the art was helping uh, propel the narrative of the, of the piece, do you feel like uh, this was just good business by integrating youth culture into, uh, into the narrative and kind of pushing along to bring the, the viewer in? Or was it purely them being influenced by the genre. I mean, you know, it's, it's said that, that Gene Roddenberry hired Walter Koenig to be the, 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 the character of Chekhov uh, for the Star Trek series because he looked like Davy Jones. And he figured that, that would bring more youth into his viewership, right? In the instances that you're providing here, where do you feel the line is drawn? Is it, is it personal preference? Is it good business? What, do you, what are your thoughts? I think it's directorial choice. I don't think it's good business. I think these directors are making the movies they wanted to make in the way they wanted to make them. And they're saying to the audience, you know what? Rock and roll, when it came out, changed everything. I wanted to put, I want to put it into my movie because we as directors are getting to sure. change everything. We as directors are getting the choices to make these movies on our own terms. And, uh, and we as a group are getting to do this, unlike anyone who came around before who made movies where the studios had ultimate control. And I think they're saying, we're doing a culturally revolutionary thing with these films. Director's choice, control, doing the films we want to do. We're not making these films for business purposes, as many of the movies became in the, you know, the 80s and so forth. And, and now it's like, with the rise of the media conglomerates now, the last, say, 20 years, the 21st century so far, um, obviously films are being controlled very heavily by these media conglomerates, and there's only six of them who control 90% of our media. Um, these companies are <laughs> making business decisions. Let's put it this way. When they put in a song or a product placement, that's a, a business strategy going on at a media conglomerate upper echelon of these companies as to what songs get in and what songs are used and what products are placed and so forth. That's strictly mm. done as a business decision. I mean, there's hopefully some creative choices being made, but more so than likely, there's business propositions going on at the highest levels. That wasn't sure. happening in the 70s and early 80s. Hey, this is Harry Vaughn from Danzig, and you are listening to Star Pod Log, the classic science fiction and fantasy magazine for your ears. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Sweet Preview Program 4, Her First Trek, a Star Trek review podcast. For the first time ever, this is a breakthrough moment, okay? You ready? Oh, gosh, okay. Can I swear? Yes. I give a shit about one of the characters, which oh, is nice, wow. because I don't normally. Which character do you give a shit about? O'Brien. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I thought it was mighty decent of him what he did, and he knew that he could have gotten in trouble, and he seems quite a loyal person to have aboard your space station. He's a decent ship. guy. Yeah. 
He's Irish. Yeah. A lot of Irish people are decent guys. I haven't met that many Irish people. I met loads. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Random Trek Review, a Star Trek Review Podcast. Okay, well, it's one of those things where, like, you would expect, like, as medical history gets better and everything, like, life expectancy gets longer. Just like we experienced in our own kind of world and planet, right? Like, it's way better now than it was 50 years ago versus 100 versus 200, so. Versus 5,000 years ago where you'd be lucky to live to, like, 30? Yeah, exactly. We'd already be done and dusted, my friend. Well, or we'd be super old. Right, we'd be like the village elders. <laughs> Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Ladies Trek Library, a podcast by women with a passion for Star Trek books. The author of this book, Dana Kramer Rolls, this is the only Star Trek book she's ever written, which would explain why I've never okay. read anything from her before. Yeah, I heard that she did write some other sci-fi books, but no other Star Trek. Yeah. And she does seem like like she's a fan. It seems, from the way she handled the characters, I I would say she is a fan of Star Trek. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling that she was a fan um, and knew the characters. She has a PhD in folklore and history of religions. Cool. So that makes sense. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.